to me, it's like, you shouldn't feel heat in your gear. When you lose visibility and you're headed towards a fire, open the nozzle, use the sound to try to orient yourself if there's a hallway or something down there, you know, flow in a pattern, flow and move down there. The data is best from flow and move. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Courtney Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, Weekly Scrap number 119. My guest this evening is the incomparable Dennis Laguerre. He is retired captain out of Oakland, California, and if I tried to list everything he was responsible for there, it would take up most of this scrap. So... He is the guru when it comes to hose spec, pump spec, hose and equipment layout, fire stream development, laying out compartment space, hose beds, etc. If you want to know about equipment, <laughs> yeah, he's the guy to ask. He owns Legear Engineering, where he is single-handedly trying to improve um, and engineer a better future for hydraulics and water moving. And we are going to talk about all of that, so I'm not trying to gloss over everything. I know you won't believe me when I tell you that this is the shortened version of this man's bio. He is a mainstay on Brass Tacks Hard Facts. He is on UL NIST panels. Uh, he writes, he teaches, he consults, and most importantly, he is having an impact in the fire service with what his passion is. My brother, Dennis Laguerre, welcome to scrap number 119. One one nine. It's uh, qu- quite impressive, Corley. One hundred and nineteen of these things. So, I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited, brother. I I hope you. <laughs> I tried to melt down everything that you were involved in. It's it's it's. I feel like I did you a disservice. Anything I miss? Anything you wanted to add? Uh, without going too far into the weeds on the intro. Go ahead. I, you know, I actually it's been. A lot of people supported me from manufacturers, you know, Key and Elkhart and others, you know. Um, you know, I try to maintain a relationship with all of them, TFT, um, North American Firehose, uh, all, all the big apparatus manufacturers. I try to have somebody on the inside. And uh, then as many fire departments and mentors as I can have and as a, a wide, I cast a wide net and I try to pick out the uh, nuggets and then condense them uh, and, and simplify them down to just the uh, basics. I, I, I'm a basics guy. I, I'm a bake the cake, not on the fire ground. Get all the complicated stuff out of the way. And then the fire ground's more like you show up and all you're doing is you're cooking a steak. Like, you it. know, and it's either medium, medium rare or well, you know, that that's it. So three options on the fire ground. I love it. And, and and like you said, melt it down. And if you can make it, and like I always say, make it so simple that even a truckie can understand it, right? Uh, yeah, crucible, refined metals. Yeah, that's what we want. All right. So Perfect. Okay, there we are. If uh, audience, get your questions ready. 100%. Um, if you have questions about hydraulics, hose, nozzles, this is the man that you get the chance to ask him. So get your questions ready. If you find value in the scrap, make sure you go to firehousevigilance.com. You can click on the support button, click on the donate button. My whole goal is to never run ads during the live scrap or anything. And so if you guys support it, we'll never that will never happen. So anyway, I always like to say that. And now we kick it off and get right into it. Now, Dennis, I don't know if you know this story. But uh, the first time I ever heard your name, well, I was on Facebook. It was a few years ago. And I was just getting involved with posting stuff on the Internet. And 
we read an article. I don't know where the article came from. I couldn't pull it up if you asked me to. But someone said, hey, if you put like a three-foot section of bigger diameter hose on the end of your hand line, it will reduce nozzle reaction. So me and me and my guys ran out there, and we, we got a three-foot section of, of, I think it was three inch at the time. might have been two and a half. And we stuck it on the end of a smaller diameter. I don't remember again. And we took video of it, and we took some slow-mo video, and then we posted it. Oh, now, my God. I remember this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like commented heavily on that, dude. A hundred percent. And this is the that's the funny part of the story is, um, it was the video did very well on Facebook. Like before then, I had a hundred views or two hundred views. Away. This yeah. one had like ninety thousand views, you know. And yeah. then, you know, I was like very proud of it and everything like that. But uh, and that and gave it, me a lot of heartache. Well, not even that. I just didn't. I didn't know what I didn't know. To be honest, you know what I'm saying. I honestly, yeah. And it is like it's easier to handle, and maybe the weight made it easier to handle, or whatever you know. Insert. But at the time, I was calling it nozzle reaction, and and you yeah. came in and you wrote a novel, not a, a novella at least. Yeah. And and I was like, I was like, I got on my computer. I wrote like I like answered back like this huge long thing, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I should see who this guy is first. And so I actually went and found out who you were, and I was like, I deleted everything I wrote and never posted it because, like, hey, okay, this guy knows a lot more about hose than I ever will. So anyway, so that was my first interaction with meeting your name on the social media sphere for yeah. what it's worth. Go ahead. Well, I probably audience kind of interested about that at least. Um, Paul Shapiro, who I consider a friend, uh, prolific author in the fire service, fairly controversial, more into the big water. And supply side uh, stuff, big fan of automatic nozzles on hand lines. Um, and, and some of that position may have changed over the years. We're all we're all entitled to change our positions as you have a better understanding. Sure. Uh, and a subject. But uh, uh, he, a few years ago, um, and I'm going to say it's more than a few years ago. This could be two decades ago. He uh, put a section of two and a half on the end of an inch and three quarter enhanced inch and three quarter let's just call it like 1.9 inch and he's like look uh you can flow 250 gallons a minute or 300 gallons a minute and this hose is very easy to move around the fire ground and it's very manageable and uh and it's true um however there are a lot of caveats to uh to that it's kind of a parlor trick you know my 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 belief is a commercial hand line should be able to be stretched commercial distances. So we're talking two to 500 feet. Um, you know, you should have a pump discharge pressure that is reasonable. So one of the problems with that setup would be uh, if you wanted to go 250 feet or 300 feet and you're pumping at 60 pounds or 70 pounds PSI per hundred feet of hose, as soon as you're 300 feet out, you're way above 200. Um, and but the reason it works, the reason it works is the water is traveling at extremely high velocity through the inch and three quarter, um, and we could do the math and figure it out. But let's say it's thirty or forty feet, thirty, thirty-two feet per second, and when it comes to the enlarged area, right, it would slow down. So you have this very excited water going through the inch and three quarter at a high friction loss. It's being rammed through that inch and three quarter. Then it gets into this larger chamber, and it's going to slow down. So that's good. So that you have less excited water. Now, that larger piece that you put at the end, let's say you took 72 inches. Okay. So let's say it's like uh, seven feet, three okay. feet in front of the nozzleman, 
four to five feet behind. Well, that is now a slowing, what I would call a stilling chamber for velocity or slowed down. And then that system now has some weight to it. There's, there's so many pounds of water per foot. Uh, and also very important is in the last 36 inches, the surface area is increased Increase. much more than the inch and three quarter. So the water slowed down. You've increased your system weight, and then you put like an inch and an eighth tip on the end of this two and a half inch section. You then now it has to reaccelerate to make the fire stream, and you have about 50 psi down at the nozzle, so you have 50 pounds of back pressure. And in two and a half, that last 36 inches would have about 280 or so square inches in it. And if you if you times that times 50, you're going to get around 14,000. And my, my rule of thumb is if you have velocity between 19 and 21 feet per second and about 14 to 15,000 combined PSI down there, it's a pretty well-balanced system and the, and the big hand line. And you, you probably experienced that when you put that larger piece on there. However, that being said, it limits your stretch potential. Uh, it causes confusion on the fire ground between line selection um, it's kind of like a, I like it as a parlor trick. You like know, say, I can yeah. go out and do it. It's kind of a, it's kind mm-hmm. of a neat, neat thing, but it makes you understand the forces that are, that are involved with making a host system balanced. And I think one thing that people don't understand is that as velocity in the water goes up, as water travels faster through hose, sidewall pressure goes down. And the way, I guess the easiest way to explain that would be like, the old put your boot on the supply line. Yeah. That's and if it's stopped, you're almost out of water. Right. Well, as you drop your compound grade gauge, velocity in that hose is going up. As it delivers, as your four inch or three inch or five inch delivers more water, velocity is going up. So sidewall pressure is going down. So now you take something like inch and three quarter and stuff 300 gallons a minute through it, and you leave it all inch and three quarter to the end. And then you put you put an inch and eighth nozzle on it. It's gonna be like you know, it's gonna be like that famous movie, whatever they call it, eight seconds. You know, <laughs> it'll be like riding a bull bull or something. Right. And that's that's why that doesn't work. You know, you'll have guys out there. They'll pump three hundred gallons a minute through an automatic nozzle, and they'll pin it to their body, and they'll say, "See, we can get three hundred gallons a minute out of inch and three quarter." And my my thing is, yeah, sure you can, but can you properly? map your advance can you keep the nozzle open can it be at a good arm's length you know it's like uh, a desert eagle 50 caliber handgun is that really a good handgun the answer is no because you, you wouldn't see you would see more people own it if it wasn't more than a parlor trick or there's a there's another handgun i don't know if you're a handgun guy i'm not but i know some of it I think there's a handgun that will fire a 410 shotgun yeah, the round. The judge. I figured you were going the to the judge. judge. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, well, why, why isn't that like the standard, you know, handgun for uh, like high power? So there's no there's no aiming. There's no nothing. You know, like if you put a slug, a 410 slug in there, you know, yeah, good luck. And uh, <laughs> the FBI has figured this out. You know, the FBI weapon study, they encourage the entire law enforcement community to go to a larger caliber round. And 20, 25 years later, they did a lot more study into it. And they said, Mia Copa, we're sorry. We're going back to the nine millimeter. Going back round to the nine. For yeah. All of these reasons, and we were wrong. 
um, which I think is amazing. If the FBI can do that with 40,000 agents or whatever, any large fire department in America can change. That gives me hope. <laughs> gives you hope. Now, I do love the 40 cal. Don't get me wrong. I'm a 40 cal yeah. fan, but I carry a nine. So I, that, that, that has the uh, action speak louder than words. I'm going to catch you up on... I missed a lot of comments already, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm starting somewhere with eight minutes into the conversation where um, Kyle Thawne. All right. Are you, I think this is a question from Kyle Thawne. Class A foam going straight into a rabbit hole. It seems that some of the most prolific subject matter experts on fire attack, including yourself, I, I'm, a, I'm assuming he's talking to you, make mention yep. of the fact that Class A foam doesn't provide much benefit, specifically in the pre-overhaul stages of fire attack and structure fires. Um, anyway, Class A foam, why it wasn't a part of the study, and most importantly, your take on the drawbacks in regards to the physics of... Class A foam, do you have anything you want to say on it to Kyle Thon? Well, you know, he's not present. Uh, I kind of... I don't want to put words in his mouth. Fair enough. Um, but but uh, uh, Dan Madrakowski, um probably is one of the reasons it's not more heavily studied his background in fire engineering you know, I for the audience that doesn't know who this gentleman is he's one of the lead fire researchers in the country he's an elder statement of that uh i shouldn't say elder but you know time let's call it a uh, time and grade or uh, Fair enough. A, gr- a greater wisdom on the planet so uh you know he he's gone down that rabbit hole in the 90s and 2000s and uh and he, he found very little uh, application to it in the pre-overhaul stages of fire. And if you look at Class A foam, probably the easiest way to know that it doesn't have much to do with initial knockdown is that if you take something that is, uh, is uh, proportioned at less than 1%, and typically Class A foam is done at much less than 1%, we would say half a percent or a third of a percent, you know, point, point 0.3 on the little gauge. If I put 100 gallons of water in, a, in uh, let's say, uh, 30 seconds into a space, or, or let's, let's, let's do a 160 nozzle. I deliver 80 gallons of, of agent into a space that is suppressive. And of that 80 gallons, right? Right, so ten percent would be uh, eight gallons. Right, right. One percent would be point eight gallons. A half a percent would be point four. Right, so we're going point four of its concentrate, and the rest of it, seventy nine point six gallons delivered, is pure unadulterated water. How can something so small? change the dynamics of what water's actually doing. And the short answer is it's impossible. You know, it, it, it ruins some of the surface tension. And I'll go, I'll go one step further. Um, I think cast, for example, especially dry cast, but even sticky cast that's wet, changes the way water rides on surfaces. And I think for knockdown, it's probably negative. Uh, it's probably you know, if it sticks to surface, I want my water to move around and shatter and go places. And what we're really dealing with in the room is heat uh, initially. So, and I'll tell you why I know, I know this is not a, not an area of science that's under dispute in the physics world. Corley, what is the most research suppression 
device in the world? I would say water. I mean, is this a trick question? No, water. Okay, so that's the agent. What's the device that puts out the most fire in the world? Come with me. Fire protect pre fire protection engineering systems, right? Okay, okay. Private fire protection systems. So there's a sprinkler. Okay. If foam made sprinkler systems, let's say fifty percent more efficient, don't you think they'd put a little inductor on the riser? Don't you think there's protecting billions of dollars? If you have a Let's say the average sprinkler fire does ten thousand dollars worth of damage, and if you if you inducted a little bit of foam in there, cut cut it to five thousand dollars worth of damage. Don't you think that would be the normal yeah. thing on a sprinkler system? We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars over decades. So they've they've studied it in sprinklers and stuff. And an initial knockdown, it's just not that important. It doesn't make a big difference. So um, now, class A foam. Systems on a on an engine, uh, I, I will do around the pump uh, foam system depending on the agency. Uh, I will typically uh, do the smallest system possible, and it's usually for wildland application or post overhaul application. Uh, modern fuels really burn on the surfaces, plastics and stuff. Class A foam is not the greatest for overhauling plastics, but Kakala fire, um, big attic. Uh, you go down to the lumber yard and you've done the, bells, the initial knockdown yeah, and you bells, want to do something hey. and you're not going to batch Mitch in your tank. Now mm-hmm. here's where people get in trouble with foam systems. They want it on all the outlets. Well, what if we play Casa number two and number one's in the fire and then like, and like our pre-connected two and a half, we want that to have foam, give it on our real line. And let's also put it on a front bumper line, which is very common. People okay. will put it in those real line, Rear discharge is pre-connected, two cross lays in the bumper. And then the foam loop's really only designed for like a 500 to 700-gallon flow. There's a lot of friction loss inside of it. So I'll go to those rigs. I'll pull the two cross lays in the big line. I'll try to pump it and gate it, and it becomes impossible to run because there's such a pressure differential because of the friction loss in the plumbing because all of those outlets share the same foam loop because – Municipal fire equipment doesn't do a custom injection pump for each outlet. They do a gross foam loop, and they put a single injection pump in it, and everything you spec on the truck comes off that foam loop. So I had a a consulting gig in a fire department that had uh, a chief that really believed in foam and put foam on all the discharges including their large diameter discharge. And from the volute of the pump to the five-inch discharge, before flowing 1,500 gallons a minute, before the water ever left the doghouse of the pump body, there was 80 PSI of friction loss in the system. Wow. So he built a rig designed not to move water. And so the manufacturer who built it left three discharges with no foam on it. Why do you think they left three discharges with no foam on it? Because they could meet the requirements, probably. They had to they had to pass the annual pump test, right. and they had to pass the UL test. He wanted those outlets to have foam on it, but the manufacturer said they couldn't do it, right? So it's kind of one of those things, like, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I think Class A foam for structural fire, at best, 
is studied in the small compartment realm. And when you look at knockdown, there's really no statistical difference. And then there's obviously the cast study that just basically shows that. Um, and that that's people go, well, Class A foam has water in it. And notice that all the cast experts over the last decades have made their casts wetter and wetter and less air and wetter. Why do you think they're making all the cast instructors have made their cast solutions less air and more water? Yeah, it's just water works. It's because water works, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love that. Yeah. And, and if you ask me an open-ended question, I, I'm just giving you a fair warning. There's no telling what answer I will come up with, just so you know. Don't. Don't ask questions you don't want uh, the answers to, right? Uh, everybody, if you've asked a question, guys, there's already been like 100 comments go by that I have not been able to look at. And so uh, Robert Ramirez, I love you, brother. He says, taking all the notes tonight, 100%. Um, Daryl Ligon says, yeah, it's not true. He's answering someone. I'm sorry. I'm not reading the answer. Uh, let's get to scrapping two questions. Let me see if it's a good question before I just rattle it off. Um, all right. Nicholas Morgan wants to know, and I, I, you probably get this question a lot, so I apologize. What's your opinion on 7 eighths versus 15 sixteenths? Does the difference of 25 extra GPM really make a difference and go? Well, you know, the short answer is, of course, right, on the deliverable. Like, if you can deliver the extra 25 gallons a minute, um, it, it'll, it'll have greater extinguishment. The higher the application rate that's actually properly delivered, the less amount of water you will use, right? So, like, you know, like if if you have a campfire and you have a five-gallon bucket and you can dump five gallons directly on the campfire, it's going to be more effective uh, uh, than six or seven gallons. Let's say you have a 10-gallon bucket, but it's heavy and you spill some on the way and you and when you toss it, it doesn't quite make it where, where it goes. I think the better question for the American fire service is why does the 15 16th exist and what's the legacy there in the history? Nice. Cause if you don't know the history, you, you won't, you won't know the, the crucible that created the solution, right? The, the mother of invention is necessity, right? So it's, is it necessary? Right. And me, I want to maximize life and property preservation on the fire ground through the functional application of water. So I'm looking at end results. I don't really care about efficiency. I'm, I'm looking for success and suppression and life safety and property preservation. People go down these rat, rabbit holes about like, I've never come out of a fire when I've pumped as an engineer and given a, a nozzle uh nozzles a high five because they only used a quarter tank like to me it's like quarter tank half a tank i don't care is right. the fire is the fire out right, <laughs> right. So like you know um you know the, the, there's metrics that people use in their heads that really have no scientifically minded people have these metrics in their heads about like water's precious or blah 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 so and then there's the other side of the uh of the equation where it's uh you know if everything looks like a nail, eventually you're going to hit it. You know, you're going to hammer yeah. everything, right? Yeah. So the 15, 16th, I think is pretty interesting. You know, I don't, somebody from FDNY with an R&D history of that organization could probably weigh in it in more detailed fashion than I can. I spent some time at their 
fire research library when I was trying to make hose uh, more to my liking and hopefully the fire service's liking. And uh, and I really kind of always wonder, like, when did the 15th, 16th come about? And it's definitely an FDNY-derived tip as far as I can tell. Um, now, here's something. The 7-8s predates the 15-16s. Like, it's a, a historic – in the historical okay. record, 7-8s existed before 15-16s, and so did the inch tip. The inch tip existed. So as far as I can tell, New York's one of those agencies that predates inch and three-quarter hose, and they had this huge ramp up of fires uh, in the starting kind of the late 60s through the 70s and early 80s, and around then – they were introducing some smaller hoses to the FDNY, including two inch. There, there was a two inch pilot. Uh, there was also a really big corporation involved uh, that was a consulting company called the Rand Organization, or uh, they did the Rand study in New York. And there was also, guess what, a wet water and foam uh, pilot uh, system there with around the pump. Um, some people say it was sabotage. You know, there's all sorts of, if you get into the nuts and bolts of it. Right. I, I digress a little bit. So now, <laughs> the 15, 16th tip. So all of a sudden, the small hose gets out. And if you talk to somebody like John Norman, when he came in the FDNY, he told me there were companies that were like, there was company officers that were like, we're never using that inch and three quarter. That's ridiculous. Two and a half worked forever. You know, whatever. It's on the rig, but we don't use it. Not, not in this in this house. Um, and in, in New York, you could tell there was some culture there, a very detailed look around water movement. Um, and the way I could tell this is true is the inch and an eighth tip, which has just been upgraded to 50 PSI to my understanding in the new engine book, uh, was traditionally operated at 40 PSI. And my understanding of the history was before inch and three quarter, the reason they ran the inch and eighth at 40 PSI was to make it easier to handle inside residential inside. structures. It substantially lowered the nozzle reaction and they didn't worry about kinks because they could put a guy on the nozzle, a guy behind the nozzle and a, and a person per coupling and right. per, per corner. Right. So now, so those six person engine companies, officer plus five, the 15, 16, the small line comes in to New York and all of a sudden, they're like, they have seven, eight-inch tips. And they're like, man, we're, we're going from 250 gallons a minute to 160 gallons a minute. Like, that's a big, big cut, right? And then they, someone probably smart said, oh, 140 gallons, 240 gallons, really. But that's still a huge drop in gallonage. How can we do it? Now, some of the companies ran inch tips on their inch and three-quarter at a lower pressure, Um as well. So there was all these mixtures of tips and pressures in New York. And I don't know which company did it first, but somebody bored out a seven eighths, a sixteenth over, and that that became part of the New York uh uh mindset in certain areas. Somebody then down at R and D knew something about the Freeman ratio because they wrote their own host back and right around there and New York hose was born one eight eight, which is half that is fifteen sixteenths. Now back to the twenty five gallons or so of extra water, extra water for extinguishment. So they had a couple cultural things going on. They were they were vastly reducing their flow uh, from what they were used to, and they also have a building 
built environment that's very different than most of America, uh, you know, other than other large cities. Their exposure problem is much greater and their capacity to deploy hand lines in a building is much lower. They have a lot of people on the fire ground, but a vast majority of work is done in buildings where you have to enter through a stairwell. So, Corley, how many lines can you deploy in a stairwell? Effectively? Correct. <laughs> We're talking about not not theoretical. Right. I get in trouble for people saying theoretical this, theoretical this, theoretical this. Effectively or functionally, how many hand lines can operate in a stairwell? I would say two. It'd be like the, 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 the functionally. Go ahead. That's correct. You came to the same conclusion that everyone comes to that operates regularly in stairwells. Now there's only two. And if you read the engine book in New York, which I was a big fan of, I read it in the 90s, it said if you need a third line, it has to come from an alternate area. So it either needs to be rope bag, coupling dropped, New York hooked up or whatever. Maybe there's another stairwell in the building. All right, so now you have all these people on the first alarm. Let's just say there's 60 guys or something, 50 to 60 guys on it. And I'll tell fire chief, how many hand lines can the fire department of New York stretch to this apartment fire? Right. Right? It's it's different. And then I go, if you pulled up and you were resource rich but access restricted, and then your exposure problem, let's say you had a fire on the third floor and it's a six-story walk-up, and there's like six units per floor, all right? So there's 18 homes above the unit that's on fire. Would you err towards yeah. just enough or having some tactical redundancy? You have an access problem, you don't have a people problem, and you have a huge exposure problem, right? No. So you're gonna, you, don't have a, you don't have a problem with putting lots of people on the line. So they can deliver that 25 gallons a minute often much better than other agencies because of staffing. They have a unique problem where their exposure problem is very high in a lot of their fires. A lot of their stretching is done dry, right, Up whether the hallway's clean or not, whether you're staging the floor below or not. And then they have a huge access problem. If they don't get it with the first hand line, it's often difficult. If you have two lines operating on the fire floor, how do you get – a line above. So that target flows kind of for agencies that have really good staffing, substantial internal exposure issues, and often operate in stairways. So when I consulted kind of with Seattle, I did a lecture for their officers thing. I never did any official consulting there, but I talked to like Aaron and Casey Phillips and Bill Jost. Like that's an agency that I think makes sense. Maybe they should still be in a 15, 16 for that 185 flow. If I go to Consumer Sacramento where I consulted and I look at their staffing and the type of fires they're going to, they absolutely should be in the 7-8s. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things where you have to know the history and then you have to look at realistically at the type of staffing and fire they have uh, uh, to, to come to a, a reasonable conclusion. No, I love it. And it's all about, like, how many people are going to be arriving on scene and, and handling this hose line and this package, and what are they going to be attacking and what are their priorities going to be? And you've got to match that. I mean, I'm trying to melt it down, but... I yes. strongly believe that the small handline attack package should be able to be operated in a continuously open position 
and shall deliver between 150 and 185 gallons a minute in that 40 to 60 PSI nozzle range, 77 feet per second to about 90 feet per second. Because you're going to have kinks on the fire sure, ground. Sure. You're going to have uh, times when you need to half bail to make the corner or something like that. So, you know, that's the, that's the target you're fl- shooting for. Do I think if you get to a room and contents fire that isn't structural, is a 20 gallons a minute going to make or break you? No. Right. Do I think if you have the staffing and you have all the restrictions FDNY, you should step back to a 7 8? Uh, no, I, I, think they're, I think they're where they need to be. I would, you know, sometimes I make these comments that are taken out of, out of context. And no people way. Get offended. No but way. I would, I would say that if I was in charge of the FDNY uh, pump chart, I would return the per length friction loss to 15 on the FDNY spec, because I think their lines are commonly over pumped and you can, you can see at times it's a hell of a lot of water. It's a struggle, you know, for even for them. Nice. Nice. Hey, uh, I'm sure I'll get shot later. No, no, you're fine. You're great. <laughs> All right. Daryl Liggins is throwing a question at you. I want to throw this at you. Dennis, what would a Dennis Laguerre engine hose bed look like? What would a Dennis Laguerre engine hose bed look like? Attack and supply and nozzles. So he, yeah, Liggins is not holding yeah. back. He's throwing it at you. Um, well, I would, you know, I think most of America's county protected and suburb fire departments. Um, so I think those, those agencies should have beds that look very similar. It's part of it's driven by the infrastructure that's in the ground. Those cities that are newer or, you know, built since the fifties, they're going to have water main infrastructure. That's very, similar and the american water works association kind of like the nfpa uh for for water departments or the way everything is done um i pretty much know what's going to be in the ground there so you know um that that being said um there there's different locations you can have the hose on the rig i'm not a huge fan of cross lays um i think you know if you if you work in a bedroom community where you have no ladder company and, you know, like, you know, the setback to the door is exactly, you know, 30, 40 feet. And you can line the cross layup every time and you're not going to be blocking anybody. You probably should be in a triple fold and have a cross lay. But, you know, I don't design things for one, one thing. I design something that should work holistically. Um, so, you know, a dentist designed engine predominantly will be an all rear host deployment model um the uh if if you want options from the from the front of the rig that's fine uh i think cross lace you're sacrificing so much in length compartment space and deployment methodology and cross lace i i see it as a net negative now that being said the two Attack handline sizes would be inch and three quarter and really, really close to inch and three quarter. And it would be a target flow of around 150 gallons a minute to 160 gallons a minute, preferably a solid tip, but fog nozzle is, is, is more than acceptable on the small attack package. Uh, But if you have a fog nozzle, you should have a clear policy of when and when you don't run it on straight stream. And then, uh, Large attack package for me would be two and a quarter inch hose. 
with a 250 gallon target flow and it would be a solid tip. Um, I think large, large attack hand lines are often applying water from the exterior to the interior initially. And there's big advantages, I think, to solid tip nozzles there. And then uh, on the supply side, there would be a bed of three inch. Um, and it might even be a split bed of three inch, like one pre-connected to a RAM monitor and the other side of it um, open for FDCs or suction to suction connections. I really believe in low side connections for uh, gridding out supplies and attack engines. And I think if you plumb your auxiliaries correctly, it's a very nice thing to do in three inch hose. And then for supply in the suburb fire department, I, I strongly believe if people understood water main infrastructure, four inch would be the common solution. And again, it would be a split bed. And if you build an L-shaped tank or an upright tank up front, and you really lower that hose bed down, um, you want your supply hose, your two four inches to be in just single columns. So it would be, and I kind of, I kind of have different thoughts on this. I, it drives me nuts. Uh, Corley, where's your supply line on your rig at work? It's center, like, right, or left? Uh, no, it'd be right. Yeah, that's right. It's on Fa- the far face, right. Facing, how- facing the rear. All right, how many? How many? How many wide is it? Oh, it's probably seven wide. I'm guessing. I'm seven. ballparking. Seven wide. But well, it, you know, it, a hey, lot I'm, of people... I'm not going to lie to you. It's like nine feet up there, though. It's it's up yeah. there. So sorry. Yeah, I don't know the agency you work for, but a lot of times people put supply hose in the dead center of the rig. Okay. And then uh, they go, "Oh, it's for weight or balance." And then it'll be like four or five wide, and you get the. You get this when you lay your supply line down the street, don't you? Get the big lazy oh, yeah. yes. Oh yeah. That's because it's really wide. No, you're not lying. Right. So, like, if I can design a rig where it's low, and that first column, the hose that's going to come off first, is on the far right side, and it's a single column for 500, and then it flips over and does the next 500. What do you think the supply lay looks like? Yeah, it looks a lot smoother. A lot straight yeah. as an arrow. Truck can drive by. You can deploy it on one side of the road, right? So then, so then that four inch for residential flows. If you look up in the NFPA standards now, they have a recommended residential flow, and they, it's only continuous five hundred gallons a minute. Five hundred gallons a minute in four inch hose is like it's less than eight psi. It's probably like five psi. Oh, let's see here. <laughs> Get the actual. Uh. 800 gallons a minute. Oh, oh! so I said 500, right? So five, I'm like, why is it so high? I was like, I glide. <laughs> ah, it's exactly it's exactly 5 PSI. There you go. It, I trust so you. At 5 PSI, if your residential hydrants typically run between 50 and 80 PSI, and you want 10 pounds on your compound gauge or something, so you have 50 PSI, right, to deal, to deal with, Five times ten is fifty. You can do a thousand foot lay away from your hydrant and still have a full five hundred gallons a minute continuous. So why would you want a size bigger than four inch? The answer is you don't. You don't need it. Now the other nice thing about four inch hose is that you can drive over it. Now when I kind of had this discussion with Seattle, uh, Chief Joseph was, I believe, at training at the time, and they went out and did it. They did it with guys on the line, guys off the line, supplying master streams, not supplying master streams. Because Seattle is a truck-like fire department, 
And often their trucks are showing up late. And one of the things I was talking to uh, Chief Dose one day, I said, why aren't you just driving over it? Right. And, and five-inch shows, guess what? Can you drive over five-inch shows, Corley? I'm guessing right now from the way you're talking, you cannot. No. What happens is it, if you look at the diameter of the wheel, when it hits, the hits, it's a little too high on the radius. Like and it skids in front. And once you push it a couple feet and a lot of pressure get on those couplings – and it pulls right out of the coupling. You lose, there's so much force involved. Um, the other thing is from a Stortz fitting from outside to outside, it's about seven and a half inches. And a lot of rigs now don't have seven and a half inches clearance. You can't even straddle it. And worse yet, in the commercial zone, five inch hose doesn't meet the six inch connection the hydrant has to the main. It's too small. So as more hydrants get used in commercial and fr- and residual zone pressure goes down, five inch is essentially too small. So five inch to me is like two inch hose. It's for on the supply side. It's way too big for bread and butter and too small for Armageddon. Now, the beauty of that bed I just described uh, in four inch hose, if you do five and five and then you put a four-way valve on it and you can drive away from a hydrant, and on the commercial fire, you go, oh, shit, I'm leaving somebody. We need good water right away. I have a four-person rig. It's one of the times I might advocate for leaving someone. Maybe right. your second year, the first engine's already there. You drop the four-way, and you pull both. Now you're laying away two four-inches. Well, two four-inches is equal to six-inch. But the nice thing about this evolution is you're going to have one wet, one dry. So let's say you lay 200 feet away from this hydrant. Commercial hydrant distance, 300 feet. Engineer calls for water, where they're going to have about an 800, 1,000-gallon minute supply right off the bat with just the one four-inch, right? Now you have the four-way on the hydrant. As you strike a second alarm and second alarm companies show up, you can assign them to the the hydrants. Now you're going to have a weld hydrant and two pump four inches. Mm. So, like, I uh, I just helped – County spec and engine, and I usually do two large diameter discharges on the officer side. It's very cheap. I don't think they need to be bigger than three and a half. You can do you can do a full three and a half inch ball valve and and it right out three inch. And it's not very expensive to do. And it's going to be a rig that can either pump dual five inch or dual four. But dual four inch, you can drive over it. You can get a long residential layout of it. Uh, it has plenty of uh, capacity, and it doesn't take up as much room in the bed. Like five inches of bed hog, and then it's like, hey, put a bulk bed on. We have no space. Well, it's because you're in five-inch hose. So, right. um, you know, so that would be the ideal. To me, like the vast majority of the fire service should be uh, in that kind of setup you know inch and three quarter around 150 gallons a minute two and a quarter around 250 three inch for your rams your suction to suction your fdc um your pump supply your rule driveway your tender you know like it's another thing you it sounds like you might work in an area it's a little rule is that true me no no i'm we're completely no. suburban but we did have a chief that spec our trucks that came from a rural background oh okay so seems, we got the dichotomy seems, that that really doesn't match up sometimes yeah a lot of people will lay five inch up a rural driveway and then they'll have a tender show up. They'll put 800 feet up a five inch up a driveway and the first tender shows up with 2,000 gallons and they'll put 800 gallons of water in a hose. It'll never see fire. It's just stuck in the hose. <laughs> just in the hose. 
and you could have just done three inch, you know, 20 PSI per, per hundred feet. That's only a pump discharge pressure of 160. And you would have two thirds more water actually be deliverable to the fire. If you use three inch and three inch ain't going to block any later arriving companies. So it's like, you know, so in oh, short, the- in short, you're a fan of the three inch, and you're not a fan of the the movement to the the movement towards the five inch LDH or the above ground uh, main. Well, oh, I think the guy who sold five inches about as qualified as a guy who sold asbestos to the uh, to the world. There you go. Hey, that's you know, pretty he, clear. He, his kids, his kids went to Disneyland. They had a good life, but I don't think it did anyone any favors. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Hey. Uh, so he said most common misunderstanding. That was one of the questions you wanted to ask. No, I'll get you. I'm gonna I'm gonna catch up. I want to catch up real quick because I want to ca- involve the audience. I'm sorry. All right. I okay. haven't got to I haven't got to include it, but I do want to get to the most commons because Steve Robertson said, "Hey, make sure he understands he's talking to firemen," and I think you get that a lot, probably from Steve. So it's all good. Um, yeah, dual four inch. I'm just checking sure. Uh, the, I, guys, uh, to the audience. There's been so many comments and questions go by that I haven't been able to catch because I'm like literally enthralled with what Dennis is saying. Um, uh, I have to catch my... All right. Rob Fisher is catching his flight. He was listening to us live, but he was at the airport. Um, Rob's good people. No doubt about it, brother. One of the best. There's some happy Christmas. Okay, I'm catching up because there's a ton of comments. So, Daryl Liggins, Merry Christmas, brother. Yes. Late to the game, did we talk about Dennis' opinion on long attack lines over 200 feet? I'm sure we'll get there. Um, okay, I'm catching up to live. All right, now, common misconception. So I'm, I'm kicking it back to you. I just want to make sure I didn't leave anything out. And, guys, there was questions I wanted to ask that I marked with hearts. They're gone now, and now we're back to Dennis. So go ahead. Well, you said common misconception was like one of the things you wanted to ask the general question. And that five-inch, I think, is a common misconception. You know, like uh, – I think people who talk about five-inch hose, uh, you know, fire departments will have a fire. If I do a hydrants to nozzles consultation, one of the things I try to set up is a meeting between the water purveyors and the uh, division chief and battalion chiefs and whoever is involved in the study and have them go over some fires where they thought they were out of water. And you have water supply engineers in the room, and they're very proud of how they manipulated valves or increased pump pressure and stuff. And then I'll have them go to a whiteboard, and I'll have them draw draw on the board how they laid their equipment out. And uh, always the water supply engineers, you can see the light bulb come on. They go, wait a minute, you didn't have your pumps on the hydrants? You, like, laid five inch away, and you were doing stuff around there, like, you had all these other fire engines on scene. Why weren't you pumping water down to them? And and what instantly is obvious to the water supply engineer is that you you expect fire flow at the end of your five inch lead, and fire flow is only designed at the outlets of the hydrant. And if once you get to a very high volume of water in that zone, you lose the kinetic energy to force water down the 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 hose so that's why the steamer outlet's called the steamer outlet on a hydrant it's because when they design the system they expect the steamer to be there to push push it fire flow at large incidents so i think one of the common misconceptions is that pumps push water they don't pull water and uh and that you know commonly at large greater alarm fires the american fire service is treating their 
steamers like city buses. They're just driving them the incident, which is a which is a real shame. And it, it typically, if you go out and run a large drill where you have, like, I'll go to a fire department, they'll set up their drill tower, and they go, look, we can do this evolution all day long, get 1,200 gallons a minute out of our tower ladder. And I'll go, hold on a minute, and I'll run down. Give me a hydrant wrench. I'll run down. I'll open two other hydrants in the zone. I'll just drive down the street and have them dumping on the ground, and they'll, they'll go like, oh, we can only get 700 gallons a minute now. And I'll go, let's put a pump on the hydrant. Like, They're back to 1,200 gallons a minute. All water supply evolutions that are drilled on should be drilled under realistic conditions. And realistic conditions is more than one hydrants being used. Now, water departments don't like it. You're spilling a lot of water, especially on the West Coast and the droughts and stuff. But if I'm on the East Coast, like the few times I've done a full hydrants in the class in Richmond, Virginia, uh, a hot one, the, the light bulbs have come on, and you can see the way that fire department operates at fires now that uh, they, they commonly are putting pumps on hydrants and welling hydrants and you know, their cult, their culture has changed. So right that's on. another question. You say culture versus equipment change. Now I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to dig down real quick and ask you about a uh, five inch real quick, because like if you're a department that has just dumped, you know, their budget into switching to five inch and they're married to it for the next 10 years of service life. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's, you know, you should be buying hose in rotation, like every five years, uh, you should replace like a third of your hose fleet, right? Yeah. So then the city manager doesn't panic or the <laughs> county. Freak most, out. Sure. most people do that incorrectly, you know. So, um, you know, perfect example of like what I consider, you know, it, you know, this is going to probably get me in trouble again. But like <laughs> the Houston Fire Department, uh, you know, within the last eight years went to five inch from four inch. Okay. And they essentially had split beds of four inch. What they were lacking was four-way hydrant valves in training, right? So the, the incident commanders I know from the training side of my life, you know, the Mo Davises, the Clyde Gordons of the world, if you ask them, they'll say, worst thing we've ever done, we should have stayed in four-inch, we should have just put more pumps on hydrants. Well, dual force is hydraulically much more effective than a single five. And then if you have dual fours and a pump on the hydrant, it's way more effective. But then people go like, well, won't, won't dual fives be even more effective than dual fours? And I'll say yes, but the hydrant's only connected to the main by six-inch pipe. Dual fives is seven-and-a-half-inch pipe. So putting seven-and-a-half-inch pipe above a six-inch connection, does that gain you anything? Right. And the answer is no. What it does is it ends up taking up a lot of space in your hose bed, you know, and, uh, and it <clears throat> takes things off the table you want to do. Like let's say you want to put a bulk bed in there. And you look up and you have all this five inch um, Richmond. When I was consulting in Richmond, Virginia, a lot of the companies, they were in four inch. A lot of the companies were carrying 1200 or 1400 feet of uh, four inch hose. And in my report, I said, there should be no more than 800 feet of four inch hose nice. on, on Richmond rig. I'm like, you have four engines coming to every alarm, you know, and it, they took me to a couple areas of the city where they go like, look, this house to get a, a, Hydrant supply to this house, you need 1,200 feet of hose. And we wheeled it out, and I said, yeah. And it would be like one house, little house in the prairie, in some field next to some industrial lot. And then I'll go, well, who lives here? The president? You know, like, are you doing everything in your entire department around this one house? 
and now you don't have bulk beds that can be used all over because of that? You know, like, and then it would be like, what's the best way to attack this house fire down this gravel road in the middle of Richmond? It's probably to go straight in and use tank water. And then the next engine probably do that. And then the two engines that are left over, if they needed to make a long joint supply, they could. Right. So it's, you know, I think outside perspective is golden. Uh, and then, then you have to take as an agency, you have to look, you said one of the questions, culture versus equipment. Yes. And I gave that example in Richmond about them now putting pumps on hydrant. They actually have four-way valves. There's like a thread issue there. They got to solve with their water department. So they knew they needed four-way valves. Like I went there and I was like, why aren't these on the rigs? Right. Some people said, oh, it's too heavy. Or once we threaded on a hydrant and it fell off. Well, identify which hydrants have the older Richmond threads. And the water department says it's like less than, uh, you know, 3% of the hydrants. And I'm like, fix it. You know, like, Without pumps on a hydrant and a heavy commercial flow where you've laid five inch out and you've laid away from the first three to four commercial hydrants, you're giving up about 50% of your supply. Nice. <clears throat> so, you know, it's 50%, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of water. So if you, if you got to a fire and you only could deliver 4,000 gallons a minute, if I went back to that same area, put pumps on hydrants and set it up a little bit different, it would typically yield between seven and eight thousand gallons a minute available. Right. You might not need it. Right. You know. And that's the thing. And that and that's probably some of the pushback you get is when are you gonna need eight thousand gallons a minute? Well, the only time you need it is when you need it, you know. So to, to me, if you set the things up, if you practice in a way that will always achieve the best water movement, it doesn't matter when, it's if, right? So uh 100%. Sean Gray, great guy, Cobb County uh, lieutenant. You know, people have had different opinions about him in the fire service. We've had our disagreements. Um, I liked the travel. I'd be calling Sean Gray from, you know, Paris. I'd be taking pictures. I'm like, how can you hit it hard from the yard here? Or, you know, I'll, I'll be in some other metropolitan area and take pictures, you know. And he's like, well, that's not my normal first do. You know, like, and he has points and I have points. But one of the things in the... UL Burns in Cobb County during the coordinated attack study, he was a nozzle firefighter in the off-plane down basement simulation where we did a ventilation above them. So we had open flow vent above them. They entered in the middle of the chimney. It's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen on yeah. video. It's chugging out. Like, I, I, I thought, like, they're probably not even going to go in. They're, like, climbing down a unidirectional type deal? And they went unit. It was a hundred percent unidirectional with the living room off and two ninety degree returns to get water on seat. Wow! And I went on record before the fire. I said I don't think anyone's going to make it down these stairs. And they said, "Well, flow and move." And I'm a flow and move guy. And I'm like, I don't know. I you know, it just seems like it's not gonna not gonna work. It's I've been to fires where I got to back up, and I, they weren't even downhill like right, that. Right. And I and I'm like, well, we'll see. And he, he said he was a big hit and move proponent as a board member on the, on the UL uh, uh, advisory board. And we would have disagreements back and forth. And I said, it's not if, it's when. I said, you're going to have a fire where not only are you going to have to have the nozzle open just to remain safe. I said, you're going to have to not have the nozzle open just to back up. Just to get said, out. Shut the yeah, nozzle get the hell down, out. You'll get burned. So they practiced it. You know, they listened. The UL is very good for me. I believe 
you know, the, the fire attack study or interior study, you know, they, they listened and they, they were going to do an interior study anyway. I think they put together a really good panel on that, you know, which I have happened to have the privilege of being part of, but he, he said he got in and they didn't even make the first turn and their gear was totally saturated, you know, with the nozzle open. And they said, man, he, we were afraid to shut the nozzle down. We had to back out. They had a whole nother crew waiting the A team. Now let's try those guys. They didn't get any farther. You know what I mean? Their gear got saturated. Sure. So, you know, um, same on the supply side. Like people go, I don't even know if I would teach hit and move anymore on, on, on is it I would, you know, to me that's a more technical skill. You need to know when it's okay to use. To me, it's like you shouldn't feel heat in your gear. When you lose visibility and you're headed towards a fire, open the nozzle. Use the sound to try to orient yourself if there's a hallway or something down there. I didn't have the advantage of tick, you know, flow in a pattern, flow and move down there. The data is best from flow and move. So guess what? The new studies are all flow and move. Yeah. It, it makes perfect sense. Dude, I love just that little sound. I had to find a pen to write down. I had to sound stamp it because that's a great sound bite, what you just said. Uh, 100%. I want uh, – now – we're getting into this, so I'm having a blast. Hope you are too. If you get bored, let me know. No, um, <laughs> I just like I looked at what we want to talk about. We're all over the map, no, dude. Hundred, and that's the thing is, is I hope you don't mind the the chaotic nature of the scrap because I the audience gets to throw their questions at you, and then you get to take it whatever direction you want. But here is one that I'm going to take control of and ask you because this one thoroughly intrigues me. And you said it in the notes when you sent the email to me. You said. You wanted to talk about what is missing from the fire triangle when talking about water. And so I love that statement. I want you to explain what you meant by it. So during the fire attack study, and if someone looks fire attack study, they won't find it. It's a big, long, lengthy name. It's like it's uh, interior attack and tenability and occupant survivability. You know, and, and, and rescuer, blah, blah, yes. And rescue or something, <laughs> you know. Everybody just calls the two studies are the fire attack study and the coordinated uh, attack study. And uh, they had already done a ton of research, mainly without applying water at the same time. And then once they applied water and did ventilation, then they wanted to know how to coordinate it. So I, I kind of feel like I, I lucked out and, and got on the two that really were my passion to begin with. Sure. But also, also, I think where it wasn't. We haven't had a really good discussion in the American Fire Service around what water does. And I, I think where I really got a sense of this was from uh, wildland firefighting. And, uh, you know, from the early 90s, you know, like uh, to about 95, 96, uh, I did obviously deploy, you know, when I was in Oakland and also in Kings County to wildland fires, but wasn't my primary duties. Uh, but I was in forestry. I was in uh, CDF before they called it Cal Fire. And one of the great advantages to fighting fires from the outside in vegetation is it's field observable. Like knowledge, a lot of learning's done through observational uh, changes from the actions you do. And so if you look at like, fire weather 
There's like the 18 orders that shot, watch out, watch out. They were 13 when I started, and then there was the fire orders, and now there's the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface, the four common denominators. They keep adding them up. But one of the things I think in fire service has had over the structural fire service for years is they could see the terrain. Like, don't attack from above. Sure. If you can, right? And it's like, oh, okay, well, what's all this flow pass stuff that we have now where you have walkout basements and guys getting roasted in the chimney and stuff like that? It's like, oh, well, that was observable in the wildland environment. Okay, so one of the things... I worked in a light, flashy fuel area of California, kind of California Oak and Chaparral down by – I was south of Yosemite. I was right outside of Kings Canyon. Okay. Sequoia National Park in Tulare County. And we would sometimes roll out in the valley, and we would be in waist-deep, you know, seeds of grass with oak and chaparral. And then we'd also have this brush that could really get on fire, uh, uh, chemise. And uh, so you would anchor your rig in. You'd get to like a paved road or a gravel road or something that's down to mineral soil, and you're either going to make a mobile attack where you drive your rig out into the into the into the grass, or if you can't do that, you're going to do a progressive hose lay. And now, if you're going to do a progressive hose lay and the fire's outside the reach of your stream, one of the things they they told you to do was you know have your nozzle open early and wet your advance. Like you're, you get you get the ground wet by your feet, and you walk into the grass, and you're gonna wet your advance, and then you use the reach of your stream. Wet your advance, use the reach of your stream, and you're walking through this wet grass that you've wetted. Now, why do you think you wet the the fuel that you're walking through, Corley? Just for that heat absorption, right? Well, it's preheated. It's been in the sun. It's the middle of summer. Has very little moisture content. So if something goes wrong, the wind changes, it has an ember goes behind you or something like that, what's going to happen to the fuel behind you? Right, it's going to light off. It's going to light off. So if you have a wet line that you've made, right, and it lights off on the right side of the wet line, you can what? You can book it. Retreat the opposite direction. You have some defensible space to get back to your safety zone, right? So then once you get to the seat of the fire, you're going to apply water directly on the fire. So essentially, what's that water doing to that dry grass? What is- it's removing it. It's removing it from the fire triangle. Because what's the fire triangle? What's the, what's the three sides? Yeah, we got, our, we got our heat fuel and our oxygen, right? Yeah, your heat fuel and your oxygen. Now, if you're on a hand crew, right, and you have no water... You use a McLeod or a Pulaski, and you work together, and you remove the fuel down to the mineral soil, and that's a way you can let the wildfire, you can remove no heat, and you can mechanically remove the fuel, Right. and the fire will bump up against your line and go out. Now, move this to the structural fire world. In my early meetings with Andrew Fredericks and Jay Kamala and Oakland was an inch and a half line when we went there, and uh, there was a guy named Tommy Simpson, a guy named uh, Lyle Elvin. They were they, when I when I right. talked to them, they're like, "Keep the nozzle open." And both of them told me, "You know, run the nozzle on straight stream. What you learned in the tower is garbage. You know, run it in straight stream. Keep the nozzle. Make a wet advance." And I started thinking about this. I said, "This is a lot like what I was taught in forestry. Right? Like, I want to wet my advance." Because it takes fuel out of the equation, right? So then you look at a modern, you look at a modern fuel package, and you have this rich, dense smoke that is fuel. Then you have this preheated living room or whatever you're going through 
on the way. The walls are preheated. Yeah. Right? You have a preheated atmosphere. So now I picture myself in my head mentally. It's worse than the grass fire. Right. I'm it's, blind. It's 360. It's all around you. It's not just it's in your feet. Yes. I'm blind. I can't see where I'm going. And I have people telling me, don't open the nozzle till you get to the seat. You use as little water as possible because you don't want to disrupt the thermal balance, right? You want to, and you had the picture in the book of the ups inversion, high heat at the top, open the nozzle too long, high heat driven down, cold to the top. You've roasted yourself, right? Right. And the way the I was, way, th- you, it's the way I was taught, man. It, you can do that with a fog nozzle. There's only one stream that can make conditions worse. Right, it's anything other than a straight or solid stream. It's a it's a fog stream because it churns the environment, and I'll I'll get into that a little bit too in just a second. So back to this wet advance, right? Go go. What is missing from the discussion, right? If I do a wet advance through a living room and I got a I got like a couple bedrooms of fire in front of me that I observed, one window was broken. Let's say they were Charlie side bedrooms, and it's slightly wind impacted. And somebody comes on, makes the ventilation bigger, and it ends up making things worse. Or maybe a window fails on my advances. Nobody's to blame. If I've wetted my advance, right, and I have an adjacent compartment flash, can the apartment that I went through flash? Well, it definitely has a higher resistance. I mean, there's no arguing that whatsoever. So you would have to say that it increased the thermal ballast of that room. It would take a lot more energy. A lot more, yes. A lot. So, and the way the way this became very clear to me when I first showed up at the UL is the way they were handling the experiments. They kept hauling all the carpet out and all their carpet padding out, and they start re-drywalling. They yanked all the drywall down. You know, and I was one of the guys that was like, well, you know. Doing multiple sets in one structure is very hard. The environment's wet. Everything's changed. And uh, they, you know, talking to Key Stakes and, and Robin and uh, and uh, uh, Steve, uh, why can't I remember his last name, but uh, the guy Herbert. that's the director now, yeah, like, um, you know, they're yeah. like, we have to do this because the data shows that if any of the stuff's pre-wet, it screws everything up. And I'm like, huh. Well, that makes sense. That's why a wet advance is so good. Yeah. So a wet advance, when you talk about flow and move as an instructor, and you're talking about open your nozzle often and often and early and apply water copiously on the advance, you have to say that it's doing more than just removing heat. It's removing fuel from the fire ground. No, you can't that argue. That carpet can't flash. That cow can't flash. Everything's better. It's it's made everything much more difficult to burn. And by the way, it's not going to destroy anything. We it's drinking water. We drink the stuff. Another reason not to put foam in it. By the way, so <laughs> like so, full you know, circle, dude. I love substance. it. If I had a house and a fire department came and extinguished my house, I would much rather reoccupy my house after they used water than something out of a blue pail in water. You know, like it. You know, that, that stuff's in the wood. You know, is it going to dry out? I know water's safe. I know wa- I know water on straight or solid stream applied copiously not only removes heat, it removes fuel from the fire ground. So it's safe for the advance. It's safe for the trapped occupants. You know, it's the safest way to extinguish. Now, 
why can we do this? Why, why can we leave the bale open without steaming ourselves? And I think this is not well understood either. No, go. All right. So if you, it's in Dave Fornell's fire management handbook, and I was hoping that they would do a brass tax on it. I might have been a little blade to the gun. They were filming when I was like, oh, have them talk about this. I can't remember what page it's on. I can dig it out. But he has this very poignant paragraph in there where he's talking about 185 gallon minute stream and uh jason vessel also quotes it in his article from sac metro about what the changes they did in sac metro pretty much after our changes in oakland but if you take a fog stream and you even put it we had this huge argument at one of the burns like that's not 20 degrees i mean that's not 30 degrees that's 20 degrees i said that when they were doing like a 30 degree fog experiment, I'm like, have you ever measured it? You know, like, and so they got on a computer and they had some sort of program that allowed them to like measure, Actually the, measure angle, the power you know? cone. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they, they were all, you know, I had the dunce cap on, you know, they're like, Oh, it's, you know, 22.3 degrees, Dennis, you know, like, um, but to me it was very important because the only time I've been in structures where things have gone really wrong with either opposing hose streams or lines being open a long time was when they were on anything other than straight or solid. And that was my field experience. I was trying to figure out why that occurred. Right. Just validating your, your anecdotal. So, right. So like, so then go out to your drill tower, put a fog nozzle on what you think's 30 degrees and stay about, let's do something realistic, seven and a half feet, no greater than 10 feet, or maybe even five feet, even close and see the amount of concrete it wets, right? So I'm going to say seven and a half feet or so, maybe 10 feet away, the size of a bedroom. That 30-degree pattern is wetting the entire opposite wall, 10 by 10, 100 square feet. That seems, that right? seems logical, yeah. So 100, 100 square feet. If you're doing 180 gallons a minute, right, if you're doing 100, 180 gallons a minute, how many are you doing a second? So it would be like, you do the math, not me. It would be like three gallons a second, okay. three times 60, right? So when you open that nozzle and it's in a 30-degree pattern and you get you get three gallons spread out over 100 square feet, 10 by 10, how much water per square foot is being hit? That's easy. Move the decimal point to two spots, three-tenths of a gallon three hundredths of a gallon. If I put three hundredths of a gallon in a one little square that's superheated, is it going to cool the square or turn into steam? Right. It's, yeah. You're it's going to turn into steam. So the 30 degree fog pattern applies water in a way where it's distributing the water over a larger area and it cannot instantly cool that. So you're always going to get more water. Now, Take that same pattern at the drill tower, turn it to straight stream or use a solid stream and aim it straight at the opposite wall. And what you'll see is water sticky. It hits one little square spot and then it will instantly cool that spot and water will radiate in a pattern against the wall. So once that spot's super cool, can that spot generate steam anymore? Right. No, yeah, you're cooling this. Zero. Right. So. Aaron calls it, it's like an eraser. That's like the first time I heard it in one of Fields' lectures. It's like an eraser. And 
not only is it like an eraser, it's an eraser that self-erases. As you move the line, that solid or straight stream against the other wall, it's also radiating in 300 degrees. So once you have a cool spot, it instantly is cooling other spots. Now, one other guy I should mention that I saw a little video demonstration that I use to drive the point home. Don't crack your finest cast iron pan or anything, but he was like, you can go to a firehouse, take the kitchen sink, have the little nozzle go straight stream, solid stream, you know, in the kitchen sink, you know, the sprayer. Oh, yeah. Right? So you can go like this. Fog, straight. Fog, straight. The little thing is something. You can take a cast iron pan, heat it up, or a pan, heat it up, hit it with the tick, get it to the same temperature, put it under the fog nozzle, and you'll see a ton of steam come off. Go back. Without changing application rate, just the way it's interacting with the surface, go back and do the same thing, and there's vastly less steam. Mm. That's it. Boom. You're done. You got a practical experiment anyone can do. You have a way to measure how much water is hitting per square foot, right? And then you can take somebody in a burn can, and you can take a 30-degree pattern and, and make things very uncomfortable. And in the same heated condition, you can do it in a salt stream and cause no problems. That should be enough for everybody. It's three no strikes doubt. and you're out. You know, it, it's done. All right. <laughs> Dude, uh, too much. Of, nah, you're making my head. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, man. Uh, I have this question coming at you. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, can you state your thoughts on wise, W-Y-E-S, uh, when they should be used, not be used, should they be used on standpipes or interior at any fire? So your thoughts on gated wise or wise in general, and I am going to give you the floor, and I'm going to be right back. Right. Well, you know, first off, I've written extensively about this, and it was like one of the first things that I really brought up in the fire service. So if you, I think it's 2019, the water supply supplemental, there's an article uh, that clearly states the reasons when and when you can't use them, not can't, you know, when I, when ideally you shouldn't use them. Right. Um, then there's also, uh, Elkhart brass. Now remember, this is a manufacturer of the equipment. So the manufacturer of the equipment allowed Daryl Liggins and myself to do a historical explanation of why it works. And then with modern flows and it's specifically two and a half inch shows, why you shouldn't do it because you can't properly pump it. Now in the, the written article, there's a lot of tactical reasons. I don't, uh, don't like them, you know, you know, causes people not to focus on the first line. It puts the second line in the same place as the first line, which that might not be where it needs to be. It might need to be the floor above. They have the same stretch potential. You know, each bundle is a hundred feet. You know, so you get the same, the backup line's the same length. The backup line always robs water from the first line. You know, there's all sorts of strategic and tactical reasons why operations are bad. But again, I think I'd be remiss where I don't point out somewhere where I think they're working fine. I want to change it. And uh, so I'll point out the Detroit Fire Department. So Detroit Fire Department's why operation, and again, the mother invention is necessity, right? It, it's the necessity part of it. Detroit has a very high water table, and uh, it, they have clay soils and 
and a high water table. So they their their hydrants don't drain very well. They they have you know they can have issues with frozen hydrants in winters. And remember, there were no radios either for like calling for water. So why was a big advantage for that? And there's all sorts of reasons why were in the fire department inventory when small hand line got introduced. Like first there wasn't enough outlets on the rig. You know, like there's two outlets, the 500 GPM pumper. How do I attach two lines off one side of the pumper? Well, it's simple. We have this device that's called a Y. A lot of this came from forestry to the urban uh, fire service. And I think, honestly, a lot of it occurred right around World War II. We had the younger, healthier men uh, in the fire service go to war. And then they said, who else has fire service experience in America? And they start hey, this old guy that works in the forest or whatever, this guy used to be a firefighter. And all of a sudden you have guys show up and they go like, why are we pulling two and a half inch hose for this car fire? Or why are we doing this for this? And like, well, there's other size hoses? Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of other options, right? Because they had a body of knowledge that didn't really get used. But Detroit, going back to Detroit, First off, their nozzle package is 125 at 75. So it has a very low nozzle reaction to begin with. Second off, if you look at the way city of Detroit's built, it's like a big suburb. There's a lot of freestanding residential structures, and it's a big, wide city. You have this hydrant problem. So one of their common evolutions, in my understanding, is you pull up, and they have this Detroit bundle on the back of the rig, and it breaks all sorts of rules for Y operations. It's a, I believe one side's three lengths and the other side's two lengths. So one side's 150. Well, that that's 150 feet, Dennis, because that might have to go to the Charlie side or some of these bigger buildings that might up on the floor above. And then we have the 100-foot length. I'm like, okay, well, how do you pump it? They go, well, we just pump it for the longer line. I'm like, okay. So the other deal is they're only splitting 125 gallons a minute and 125 gallons a minute, and their two-and-a-half-inch shows is like 2.8 inches. It's bigger. They don't have to open a compartment. That Y typically never makes it inside the structure. That's a no-no. Like one of the one of the fire departments I greatly respect, you know, you'll hear them have a water supply issue on the fire ground. And you go like, oh, someone's going to say it on the radio here shortly. And they'll say, hey, someone go check the Y, you know, like because it's in the smoke and someone's kicked it or it's gotten shut. So the Y stays outside. The engine goes down a hydrant. They check a hydrant. If that hydrant's working, then they send water right away. Do they need to wait for a radio call? No, because they have the Y on the fire ground. It's in the front, right? So Detroit's a good example of they're a department that's still in a historical flow. Their two-and-a-half-inch shows actually oversized. They overpump the system. So essentially, they probably flow 140 out of one line, but is anyone going to complain 140 on a 125-75 on a right. nozzle? No. Then they open the other line. Maybe they're both at 125. You know, that's fine. You know, it works. As long as they understand that that's what's occurring, I'm fine with that. The thing that's great about that evolution is that they're not opening a compartment. They're not making and breaking connections. It's set up. That's the way it's done. Oakland had something very similar to that when Jay Camel was hired. It was called Baby Lines. It was 200-foot packs an inch and a half on a two-and-a-half, and it was pre-finished. Nobody had to make or break or anything, and it was used very similarly. So in that article, I kind of discussed that. But ultimately, the modern flow of 150 to 175 or 180 gallons a minute 
trying to split that between a two and a half, you know, and pump it, it doesn't work. And then there's a lot of difference with the way fires develop now very rapidly and stuff. A lot of the why stuff was historically based. You know, people go like, I'll talk, I talked to a division chief in Portland um, that retired. He's like, well, I never remember having like a lot of smoke on the floor below. Like we could hook up the why it wasn't so bad. Well, what about now? It's horrible. There's smoke right. everywhere. It's like, well, you know, Fires are smokier than they were in the past, and smoke gets down on the floor below. And should you be making and breaking connections to the floor below? Probably not. Like, it's not a good idea. So that is one of those things where you said culture versus equipment. I personally kind of believe um, this is one that I kind of take credit for is, is, a, is something I got, I got beat up a lot. I had a tinfoil hat. I was naked with the sandwich board on the side of the road says wise are the death of the fire service. And then eventually somebody put some clothes on me and my tinfoil hat came off. And then someone grabbed the the sandwich board said, you don't need that anymore. There's enough information there out about this. I think that if you're a modern fire department and you're going for the 150, 185 gallon minute flow and you're doing a Y operation instead of a bulk bed um, or maybe even a long, uh, small line, you know, 300 or 350 or 400, um, you're doing a less beneficial operation for, for, for deployment and rapidly applying water on your lengthy stretches. It's slow too. That was the final thing that changed it in the Seattle fire department. When they, they didn't mind, they were not a mag nozzles. They ended up understanding that there was huge pressure fluctuations and whatever, but when they put a stopwatch to it and they started looking at the tactical problems it was causing, I think that's really when the Seattle Fire Department got rid of their Y operation. 100%. Uh, Brian Brush said this, the institutionalization of, I'm, I'm going to read this to you so you can enjoy it, of the gated Y into interior operations is the definition of normalization of deviance. In 99% of departments, reference NFBA standards, flow simultaneous lines, and reference line-of-duty deaths. Bottom line, a gated Y is a quarter-turn valve, and nowhere else in the fire service do we accept a potential life-changing compromise, not be an obvious visual display, an OSNY for fire sprinklers, but an eighth-of-an-inch move cuts 50% flow in gated Y attack packages. So I think he kind of answered Yeah, that. I mean, that's a, very, that's a very good point. You know, and Andy Frederick said, said if you can avoid a standpipe, you avoid it. Right, you don't want to shut off midline between the nozzle operator and the and the pump panel. Who's manning it? It's remote. There's going to be issues with it. Um, you know, it it's just one of those things. Normalization of deviance. There's a lot of instructors that go out and teach that, and I always go like. No, you don't understand normalization and deviance. You can't understand what you're doing is incorrect for a true normalization right. and deviance. You have to, to you have to be ignorant of the fact. You have to be ignorant, right? I think there's enough material out there now. Ignorance has been flushed out of this debate. It, so now if you're using them, other than in the fashion maybe Detroit's using them, they're outside, they're pre you know, and you know all the things. That moves you from a column of ignorance to negligent. You know, to me, I, I, it's like uh, using a fog nozzle on a standpipe. You know, like people go like, well, how often is a nozzle clogged 
and there'd been a large loss of life or property. And I'm like, well, I don't know, but I know if I had a hundred million dollar building and the first two lines clogged and I burned up $80 million worth of my property, I wouldn't be paying for it. You know, there's enough like that, that if that occurs, that's on the city. There's enough knowledge right. that you could prove they were operating negligently. I think there's enough knowledge around gated Y operations now. You can say the way most people use them is negligent. Daniel Shaw wants to know, have Dennis discussed the reason for carrying specifically 35-foot short sections of LDH? He talked about this at Water on the Fire and blew my mind on the detail he puts into the decision-making. Um, well, I've become most fire engines are about 30 to 33 feet long now. And, uh, the, the reason LDH hose comes in hundred foot sections is twofold. First, the couplings are the most expensive thing on the hose. And then secondly, cause it's LDH, it takes up the most room in the supply bed. So one of the things when Oakland went to four inch hose, I I wanted them to be in 75-foot lengths because it would be half the length of the rig and a 35, and then I could do 35s, and I'd be good. If I had a rear intake, a front intake, and a side intake, I could pretty much do everything that I wanted. Um, but it became unrealistic. I, I did the math, the calculation, how much room I had in the hose bed. It wasn't going to work, and it's going to be an odd length, and everybody does hydraulics in length, 50-foot length and 100-foot length, so... Then I did 50s and 25 uh, bundles uh, in my in my department when I was there. Then as I was consulting, I started looking at this more, and I'm like, I don't know. There's still times when 50 could be a little short depending on need, and 25 often is too short. Uh, and then like two 35s would always get me to 70 if a coupling was in the wrong place. So then I started thinking about, identifying hose and what i what i like is a band at the 50 and a double band at the 25s so if you look i i know everybody's been there anyone who's been a pump operator has gone back and they see a coupling away from the bumper and they wonder like how far is that coupling away from my bumper is my 50 gonna make it to my side intake if i do a 50 here am i gonna have too much hose and the back, if I have a rear intake, you know, or should I just pull to the next coupling? Where am I in this? Well, if you have a double band on the 25-foot sides, if you see the double band laying right there on the tailboard, you know that that thing's 25 feet back, right? The next coupling is 25. If the, you don't see the double band, you know it's closer than 25 feet to the tailboard. You know, basically most pumpers, if you measure from the eyelet of the pump to the tailboard, it's around 16 feet often. So if you have a 35, it'll get you to the uh, uh, to 15 feet past the tailboard. So if you don't see the double, like that's one of the indicators. Like, um, I'm a big believer that true type 1 pumping apparatus should have four intakes for, for a variety of pumping evolutions. Like if I teach a high... I teach a hands-on heavy stream fire, I run out of intakes more often than I run out of discharges. But but one of the things about nice having a front suction on a swivel, Corley, have you been where you see the coupling? It's like it's like 
15, 20 feet back and you know you have 70 feet in front of you, right? Have you ever pulled the 70 feet out and made that loop in the street and gone in your side? Yeah, tried, tried to eat, try to eat up the slack, yeah. Right. What's that do to the roadway? Oh, yeah, it eats it all up. It's all gone. Right. No one's passed, right? right? So, like, a front, like one of the things I teach, like, if, if you have 70 feet left in the bed and you you uh, you grab a loop and it's 10 foot and you go back at an angle till you see a next coupling hit the ground, right? If you have a front suction, you can run by the side of the rig and the loop, the, rig, the rig's 35 feet, it's 15 feet back, and then you loop it in front. It's only a 25-foot loop to the front suction. So, you can... You can eat up all that in one move and not use another hose, right? Other scenario is like you're really tight in, and you're you're at a you're uh, you're at a spot where you want to use the rear intake, right? Right. So where where does it line up? Those markings mean a lot, right? So if you if you if you if you have a double hash on the tailboard and you have 75 feet back, you go, okay, well, at this moment, I can use the rear intake. Right. Like, I, I can use I can use a rear intake. So, I think 35s, um, two together are 70. You know, one together takes you to 10 feet past the tailboard. It also makes it easier to catch a hydrant. Um, and there, there's some host spec stuff. Like, for Key's product line, I personally – have found that the magnum nylon jacketed stuff has a better kink radius than the eco 10 like sometimes i'll spec different hose specs for different jobs um here's a perfect example do you have a trash line on your rig front front bumper line front bumper line i really like rubber covered hose yeah for trash lines i can't knock it right they don't they don't they don't absorb water any oil or road grind comes right off them. They don't hold glass in them. So when you're repacking, you know what I mean? You can rinse it off. And if you're in a freezing environment, right, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good hose back for a trash line. You know, like, so like, you know, those are the kind of things that I think about for whatever reason. I don't even work no, in a cold I love it. I love it. And the thing is, like you said, the 35 foot, we have our pony rolls that we carry on both sides of our rigs are 25 and 50 foot. And, and there's no thought pro. I mean, maybe there, I, I don't want to sell people short. There probably was thought process that went into it, but I really think the process that went into it was, well, we get four of them, you know, we keep 25s, we get four of them and two of them at 50. So we'll just chop them up, put the couplings on them and go from there. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't thought out on the length. It was more about dividing up the hundred foot section. Markings on LDHOs for fifties and the two twenty fives are game changers and having four intakes are game 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 changing too for rig dynamics especially front intakes you know front intakes if you have two engines nose to nose and you want to share water front intakes are amazing um front in, front front intakes i wasn't a huge fan until i started messing with them and i'm like man i'm a victim of my culture we didn't have them anymore on the rigs that i learned on and now that i've used them and thought about it i go god these are really valuable um, right. pieces of equipment you know that that I, you know, I, I, uh, changed my position, you know? Hey, that's the beautiful part about being able to do so. Uh, now I have this on good authority. Okay. And by good authority, I'm saying it's Daryl Liggins, Oakland fire. And he's a gentleman in the fire service, but he says that you are in fact a very big foodie. 
and yeah. you travel the world and you eat a lot of uh, delicious and exotic foods. But what I wanted to ask you was, what are your top recommendations or slash most memorable meals? Um, well, you know, if we're going to relate this to the fire service, prob- probably, you know, if you go to a fine dining establishment, it's not going to be like um, the Cheesecake Factory, right? The che- Cheesecake Factory is like, well, I, this guy wants Thai food tonight, and this guy wants this and what. And is it edible or decent? Sure, everybody might walk out satisfied. But it's not like um, going to a very place that focuses on one thing. Okay. So, like uh, – um, there's a very famous uh, uh, guy who does Vietnamese food in Portland. They like that, and he's a white dude. He went, he lived in Asia and everything, and he just does one type of uh, of Vietnamese food, you know. And, and uh, you know, that's an example of that. So, a lot of the a lot of things that I like are simple, you know, like uh, um, street food. So I I, I spent a. Uh, little over a month in China with my father around 2004. We hired a guide. And we went we went from Shanghai to Beijing. And, uh, you know, I wanted to eat whatever was edible uh, that wouldn't make me sick. So I'm talking to my guide. He goes, well, any street food vendor that has a long line and any ethnic, you know, non-metropolitan area, uh, it's totally safe. He's like, the water might not be safe. <laughs> you know, drink drink bottle of water. I just chose to drink beer the entire time. Okay. The uh, time I was there was uh it was eight yuan to the dollar. And uh you could get a quart size ting sao in the rural area for two yuan. So for twenty five cents you could basically have thirty two ounces of beer. So run, having safe water was no problem. I just right. drank it in beer form. Right on. Uh, but uh yeah, like you know, little the, you'll go to one place and it's like, well, how long have you been making this? And it's like, oh, I don't know. My mom made this and then I then I took it over and now I'm teaching my daughter. And it's like a steam bow cart in the middle of nowhere. The, you know, those are some of the best meals uh, I've had simplicity wise. And if you right. look at if you look at stuff, peasant food often is elevated in fine dining. You know, like you can have you can have a crepe. And have a really interesting savory crepe with lox and salmon or whatever. But it was peasant food. So a lot of, if you go to a fine dining restaurant, there's basically two experiences you're going to run into. First, the bill is going to be very expensive. And second, there's going to be very limited choice. Right. It's going right. to be like, it's a master cooking. And he's going to say, this is what I'm making look tonight. Look at what's in season and this is what you're getting. And right. hopefully it'll be courses. There's a Michelin star restaurant, two Michelin star restaurant in Oakland. I haven't been there for years. I've eaten there a couple times. Camis, it's particularly good. Um, and you know, I, I want to support the the cooking community in in Oakland, obviously. Um, but I, I have found that a lot of the best food. Um, uh, I was in New Orleans. And Station 29, I kind of met with them down at French Quarter, and they told me to go out in the cemetery district. And they said, hey, when you're out there, there's a fish fry kitty corner of this firehouse. All they do is, I think it was catfish. All they do is catfish, and uh, 
and they catch it themselves and they fry it. And it's like, that's the best fried fish I've ever had. I still remember it. It's crispy. It was delicious. Then the opposite experience is if you're in New Orleans, two restaurants I'd recommend is Bayona, which is kind of like maybe a couple items on the menu, pretty expensive price point. Then the other one's Two Jacks, which is owned by an Oriental family, but second oldest restaurant in New Orleans, and they just <laughs> kept the menu. Right. Right. You don't have to be you don't have to be of that ethnic background to make good food, right? Like if you eat at a fresh restaurant in New York City, I guarantee you the staff's mainly Hispanic, right? right. So like this all equates back to the fire service, right? Okay. You don't have to work for a busy fire department to be a good nozzleman, right? You don't have to uh, you don't have to uh, work for a fire department that has nothing but static beds on it to realize the benefit. You don't have to work for LA or Boston or or New York to be like, hey, we should have one of these, right? But ultimately. You know, there's acid, fat, protein, and sweetness, right? What you're trying to do, I think the hardest thing that when I get hired as a consultant is a lot of people think I'm just going to come and copy what I did in Oakland and put it there. And that would be a disservice. No one knows that organization or the built environment and stuff better than the local response, response. Firefighting is local. Fire suppression is global. Fire dynamics are global. So, like, I can look at all the local factors and look at your existing equipment and then make really relevant suggestions on how, hey, maybe you're using too much butter in that recipe. Maybe you need more of that, right? You're you're adjust you're adjusting stuff, right? So, um, you know, that's kind of you Beautiful, know, food. Man. It's a food great analogy, stuff. man. Yeah, food. Food's easy analogy to uh, to the fire service when you really look at it, especially like when you're cooking in the firehouse. You know, like a well stocked, pa- you know, a simply stocked pantry in a fire department is golden, right? If you just have like some basic dry ingredients, butter, some basic oils, and sugar, right? Like you can basically cook something to eat at all times. Oh yeah, eggs, butter, sugar, and flour. You know, if you have those four things and buy some vegetables and a protein, you can do anything. No, anything right? so yeah, like, it's beautiful. That's how your engine should be. It should be from that basic, that basic level. You just need the base. Is that the book and, you're going to write? Is like, here's the four ingredients of the, of an awesome engine company. According to Dennis Laguerre. That's a good book. Uh, man. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been asked to write. The you, problem is, uh, uh, the problem with writing books for the fire service is that it's a uh, you have to be in the right mindset to do it. I'm just Fair enough. There. No, no, I, I was just throwing, I, I think it's a great premise, man. The the whole ba- the the cooking analogy, great yeah. premise. Everybody, everybody on the audience, man. I um I feel like I have let you down a little bit with not getting your questions there. I promise you, we'll come back to them and hit them uh, uh, at a later date and type in answers. Uh, Dennis, there's a ton of questions coming at you. So I hope sometime you could come back here and look at all the comments and questions that came at you when you have a, when you have a moment of free time. But I, w- I always like to ask, is there a book or books that you think firefighters should be reading? You know, <laughs> again, I'm kind of a victim of, uh, I came in the fire service when there were, you know, Dave Fornell's fire management handstring book was fairly new. Uh, you could get it for a cheap price. It's a very good book to read. Um, you know, they're not on there. I guess they can't see me, or maybe they can't see me on Facebook Live. This guy, Lawrence W. Uh, 
Irwin, uh, E-R-E-N, Fire Fighting Apparatus and Procedures. Nice. This is an LAC chief, and he, he wrote for a very small publisher. And, uh, you know, uh, this book, this is a book, if I was going to write a book for the American Fire Service, this book, the first half of it is engine apparatus policy and procedures and the second half of it is truck and the city of oakland only had it on the uh pump operators test the engineers exam but uh but you know if you can see the back of it there's a ladder collapse and proper positioning of ladders and you'll hear me say like stuff when i'm talking about standpipe outlet scrub and i talk about the code and why Ray McCormick's always talking three lengths. And Dave McGrail's always talking four lengths. And Ray says you can do everything in the in the stairwell, which I believe is true, especially in the city of New York. They're exiting, like, Lieutenant McCormick and the FDNY rarely on a standpipe job would need four lengths of hose. Dave McGrail and Eric Tullin and those guys, because they have a middle, middle hallway outlet allowance, and their standpipe might be outside. They might have to go into the floor below and then come in. And then it's a sprinkler building where they've added a 50-foot travel distance allowance. And the outlet's not even in the stair. You right. know, they might need five or six lengths at times. And then you talk to Dave McGrail, and he's defaulted to always lay in a dirty hallway. He likes all the hose to be laid out the floor below. And then you talk to somebody from the FDNY, they're going to think that's absolutely crazy. Right. And both of them are correct. Right. It's based on it's based on the jurisdictional infrastructure that they've done their work in. Which is uh, the beautiful thing about when you come in and consult somebody, because that's what you analyze is their whole response model, resources, apparatus, staffing, everything, water supply. You know. Anyway. It's, it's all around water supply movement. We spent a lot of time with the surveyor's wheel, the water department, the lengths of the rigs. You know, there's a lot of fire departments that have engines that are unnecessarily burdened with truck equipment. So I said on here, something you wanted me to talk about was spec and layout impacts fire on operations, yes. initial unit actions, Deployment model, scene management, and emergent situations such as maydays. All right, so let's say you're a fire department that has a decent amount of trucks. Like, let's say you have a three-in-one ratio or something like that. Three engines to one truck. But you have engines that are carrying combi tools, and uh, and maybe you, some of them are quints. You know, maybe you have the, some dry trucks. And the bulk quints. of the American fire service is what you're talking about. And then... Your fire department that starts looking out and you go like, how can I increase my performance on fire grounds, right? And you go, well, let's do some riding positions. First engine does this, you know, second engine does that. This The guy that's sitting behind the officers, typically the nozzles, you know, the other guy's the lead off man or the, or the, or the door, you know, and you start looking at trucks, you start doing riding positions, right? And uh, Tony Carroll and I joint instruct sometimes, and Tony Carroll will be, wouldn't it be great if everybody had all the equipment they need when they showed up, and then it would just be their order they arrive in or what they need is what they pull. To me, that's like the absolute worst. Like, okay. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of a wor- worse way. Like, what I want is someone who's looking at this in a tactical and strategical sense. So um, I did a consulting job in a place called Tualatin Valley outside of Portland. 
And they are basically unwinding their Quint model when I was there. I also did Clackamas across the way. Okay. And they had rule stations where you needed some enhanced engine companies. Like, they needed a set of jaws. Maybe they should have a 28-foot ladder instead of a 24 or 16-foot roof. Maybe they need a saw. But one of the things that was very difficult for them to understand is you want to start removing truck equipment from engines as you're unwinding your quint model and you're going to dry trucks and incident commanders had a, the battalion chief's rank had a big problem with it they're like well, what, what if i need them to cut a hole or what if i want them to sure and i'm like well i go have you ever showed up to an extrication and the first two engine has a combi tool on it and you show up and traffic controls basically zill the rig's not in pump there's no protection line down and they got their combi tool out and they're trying to pop the door, and the brand-new dry truck company that has a full set of extrication equipment that lays the mat down, that has a plan in place, is three minutes out. Why did they take the combi tool off the engine? Well, it's tactical discipline. They should have realized the truck's three minutes out. Our job's patient care, traffic control, calling PD, getting it set up, getting a protection line down, right? But the tools there calling you, hey, you can get to the patient better if you just pop the door. Everyone's going to do that. Like, it's very hard in an emergency uh, not, not to do that. So spec and layout does dictate response, right? So what's the easiest correct there? If you, if you just opened, unwound five quints and opened five dry truck companies and a rescue in your county, and you've, you've made those dedicated trucks, and you used to have a bunch of engines with a lot of truck equipment on it, and you don't want them doing truck work anymore, what should you be doing? Yeah, getting that equipment off there. You should get that equipment off. 100%. And as you get that equipment off, what can you do to the engine? Oh, yeah, it starts to be task-focused. Shrink it yeah. down. Oh, you can yeah. lower the hose bed. You can get the bulk beds. You can get the Y evolution out, oh. right? Yeah. So, so, like, for example like ladder operations on engines you get a first two engine this is very hotly debated in the fire service when's it okay for the first two engine to go for a ladder rescue right right and I, i'm a big i look like i, I like no known there. i like no known as a as a as a as an indicator but go ahead all right so known knowns on the first two engine typically what length ladders do you have on an engine 24 or 35, depending on how it's specced or et cetera. All right. If, if, so we're, talk, if we're talking extensions, but yeah, you also got your roof ladders, but go ahead. All right. So is a 35-foot ladder a one-person ladder? Unless you were just a freaking beast, no. Right. Probably not in an emergency. Should you right. go out and try to prove you can do it or whatever? I don't have any problems right. with that, but I'm going to say on a fire It's not a one-person ladder. I'll give you 100%. So, but the NFPA, I would say the vast majority of engines in the United States have 24s and 14s on because okay. that's what's the, on the minimum stand. Agreed. All right, so let's just look at the average engine pulling up that has a 24 and 14 on. Would you say that's fair? That's fair. All right. So a 24 and 14. All right. So 24 on a conventional foundation won't meet the third, won't hit a third story balcony, right? So a 14 on a conventional won't hit the second story. So you got to deal with the 24 if you don't have a 16, right? That's one of the reasons I like 16 foot ladders on engines because it, 
if you mount the 16 foot ladder on the outside and you pull up and you want to put it into a second story window, it has a greater chance of success, right? If it's not a slab foundation, right? So I'm, I do think about this stuff. Like I really like 28s and 16s on engines, right? Cause most people have legacy foundations somewhere in their first due. They're not all slabs, right? But you show up and there's a person presenting. Is a fall from a second story window fatal? Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's questionable, yeah. right? Like, like I'm with you. most people are going to be like, oh, shit. they're not going to dive head first. They're going to hang down and try to drop or whatever. And I've seen that. I've had people jump upon arriving at fires and typically they're have a broken leg. Right. It's survivable. Like it's survivable. Like, it's, yeah, it's survi- not it's enjoyable, survivable. but survivable. It's right. So like most engines pulling up when they go for the ladder rescue, the person at the window has the solution for just, them. Just overcoming right? gravity. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not a non fight. I would say most people will jump from a second story window. Sure. No, you're right. Right. And most engines don't have ladders that will reach third, fourth and fifth story windows. Right. So you're, you're, you're doing something, you're doing an action where in the end, them jumping is probably non-fatal. But remember, go back to that fire triangle that I was talking about. An engine company can deploy a hand line that will remove both heat and fuel faster than the ladder evolution. And by the way, if you do that, it most likely makes the ladder evolution possible. Dude, I love it, man. You're, yeah, right? So like if, if you... If you deploy the hand line and you apply water over their head and you don't even go inside, it probably makes a relatively slow-paced, proper hand line uh, ladder evolution possible. If you go inside and you apply water in a copious fashion and they're on the second floor and smoke's driving in the window, they're instantly going to feel relief from operations on the floor below. So, like, I I think spec and layout dictates a lot of this stuff. Oh, so like, we had a big discussion about this. It's like, are there some agencies in America, should they even, do they even need ground ladders on their engines, right? If oh, you had wow. a two-to-one truck ratio and engine and truck usually tie on scene, now, would I ever advocate for removing ground ladders from engines? No, but what, I'm, what, I, what I try to do when I'm consulting is I'll say, like, just challenge their thinking, their thinking process. Engines are fine with pre-connects, but they're not okay without a small line bulk bed. You can have one and not the other. The small line bulk bed can stretch short fast, medium fast, long fast. Long fast. Right? It can do yeah. complex and uncomplex. It can do vertical challenging, vertical easy, well hole, non-well hole. It can do... Tra- travel distance hard technical like if you if you design it like they pal out to design it where you can shoulder load all the hose you can go around objects and stuff like that pre-connects are only good in their pre-connected length that's why there's all sorts of solutions for lengthening pre-connects oh i, I keep a bundle here for my pre-connect you know and I, I i found that in the city of richmond they have a 350 line they're dc beltway influenced mm-hmm and then I started noticing on some engines, there's an extra roll of hose. And I go like, what's that here for? Well, in these certain projects, we really need it to be 400. So it's there. I go, well, why don't you just unconnect it and 
add that length of hose. And then if you need it, it's already on the line, right? So like, I honestly think if you're grabbing a bundle on an engine regularly and it's not related to standpipe operations, you have a trouble, you have troubled spec and layout. The bundle, imagine this, like history-wise, there was no pre-connected hose. What invented the bundle? The standpipe or the pre-connected hose? Probably a little bit of both. Okay, okay. Because once you've pre-connected a line and you've fallen short, how many times are you going to do that where you got to go back to the rig and, and then right. find you know, hose yeah, find until it. you go like, oh, wait a minute. We should, when we fall short, we should have something ready to go. Right. Right? So, like, if you look at a department that's in all static beds, they don't recognize their bundle as something to extend a hose line with. It's just not in their it's just not in their mindset because they don't stretch short. Like, it doesn't happen. It will happen. I'm not saying they're perfect. Right, right. right. That's but then on the your next point. line, why sh- – you know, I tell people all the time, let's say you go up to an apartment fire and you have a fire that's uh, on the second floor, right? Okay. And the 200 foot's made it. And you're pulling the second line to Division Two. Why should you not pull the second 200 foot pre-connect? Why should and I'm, you not- I'm going to say this building's four stories. <laughs> Go to fill me in. The second line in a multiple dwelling fire shall be easily able to stretch at least one length longer than longer. the first line. Okay. The reason why is where does the second line often need to be in operation? The floor above. Okay. So if you're not a fire department that routinely fights fires in multiple family right. dwellings you get in the habit of like it's a four-story apartment building and they got the first line on it they're asking for a second and then you pull a second line you're up on the second floor and they go oh shit dude it's apartment That's 312 above. we yeah. got some extension above you're short bring me the bundle right, right. no it's been built into your culture so spec and layout so back to how it dictates strategy and tactics so one of the fire departments i called it consulted with Tualatin Valley, I started doing this rabbit hole thing with them. And eventually the hose and nozzle committee said, well, I don't understand why we have any pre-connects. Why don't we just have two inch and three quarter bulk beds and a big bulk bed of two and a half, and that'll just be our attack package. And we're going to just have that. And I said, hey, that's fine, right? That's going to be a huge cultural change. I don't know if you guys can do it as a (laughs) 25 station fire department. Like the rural firefighters are like, what? Why are we getting rid of pre-connects? Right. But I told the battalion chiefs, how often do you show up and you have three, four, or five lines deployed off one engine? And they, a couple of them said, but yeah, it happens all the time. We hate it. You know, like everything's off one engine. It's stripped. You know, people are tripping over each other. They're making stuff up as they go. I said, well, if you go to this, you'll never have that problem again. You'll always have the third line, if you need it, will be from where? not the first two engine. It's not present. So it took about five years, right? And there was a lot of heartache. But now when I talk to that agency, they go like, oh, yeah, we always have a second water supply. If we need a third line, it's always off a redundant engine. Why? Because it's just not possible to screw it up. They can only deploy two inch and three quarters off the rig. That's it. So Chicago is a perfect example of this back in the day. They used to do 750 pumps and only had two and a half inch hose. Three beds of two and a half. One, two, three, that's a 750 flow, right? Right. So it was all set up 
one line, two line, that's it. Master streams were 750, right? Then ultimately he said, hey, small line's important. We're going to do some changes, right? But ultimately we want to keep things as simple as possible. And if you take pre-connects away from a fire department, well, how many evolutions do you need to teach when you're deploying a handline? Well, it's more than if you just have pre-connects. So. Well, if you have a pre-connect, if, you, if this is when we pull the 150, Dennis. <laughs> this is when, oh, if it's three stories and under, we can get away with the 300. But make sure, because sometimes we overstretch that. This is the 200, right? Oh, if you yeah. go to one I mindset, thought, I, yeah. one methodology, right? So to me, if I go to a place and there's, let's say, five handline evolutions and there's five supply evolutions, and I teach them something they want to add, I highly advocate not making it worse. I go, well, if you want to add what I taught you, remove one of these others. Right. You already got 10 plays here, right? (laughs) So that's why Aaron Fields gets in all that, like, rules of three and the Marines are like that. And uh, I personally, you know, Bruce Lee was somebody I thought was pretty at the top of his his, uh, profession. And he, he always said, like, you know, there was a famous quote, I fear the man that's practiced one kick 10,000 times, basically more than I fear anyone that's practiced one thing, uh, 10,000 things one One time. time, So it's like, you know, ultimately you look at the agency you're in and then you figure out how Swiss army knife you need to be. But I think engine companies should be like a buck knife on the attack side. Just, you know, if you're going to skin a deer, use a buck knife. And, like, we're looking at suppressing fire. How can we boil it down to just these are the things we need? Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I did a good job explaining that. I think you did. I really do think you did. I think it's just a complex. Uh, here's the thing is when you quiz me, I feel like I'm on a, I'm taking a test. And I don't want to fail. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm no, like it's a, not like that at I'm all. Like a I'm all I'm, I like you. It gets people to think. So that emergent <laughs> situation, right? Okay. That emergent situation, if you have somebody yell that they are out of water on the fire ground, right? You have somebody come up on the radio, they have a loss of water in their hand line. Would you rather be operating the rig that only can have two lines off it or the rig with five lines off it? No, definitely two lines definitely seems like a better situation there. I mean, that's a pretty simple <laughs> right, math. I mean, right? So it's just like if you're, if you're a chief and you have somebody go down and they were doing a truck operation, hey, somebody's gone down and they're on the roof, right? Would you want to be managing a quint department or a dedicated truck department? Ah, oh, dude, you're preaching to the choir because I firmly believe in in dedicated, yeah, discipline. So if it's a dedicated truck, you know what unit they're from. Yeah, there's no mixing on the fire ground. Yeah, it's like, oh, a member of Engine Two's down. What's Engine Two do on? The, what's the second do engine? Uh, engine Three was the second do engine. What's the second do unit do on these types of fires? We know where to look for them. Right. You know what I mean? Everybody wants like. We should be able to show up and do everything, right? And uh, the Honolulu Fire Department had really that mindset, right? And then they had the Mark, they had the Marco Polo fire, and I think it caused some issues. It was like, where are people? What are they doing? And they're very resistant to doing, like, dedicated riding positions. And I told them when I was there teaching at their drill tower, I said, some of the confusion at that fire came because you don't have dedicated riding positions that are very spelled out. Everybody starts on the same page so that you can audible from those pages. 
Yep. And that's the spec and layout's the same way. Right. Like, you know, if you make it very simple, right, there's no confusion. If if you pull up and you're you're a, you're a fire engine for long stretches over 200 feet, you have a bulk bed. Okay. And that's the one evolution everybody's trade on. No one's going to extend the blitz line. No one's going to join the two pre-connects together. No one's going to grab the bundle and try to do X, Y, Z. Right. It's just like, hey, the 200's not going to make it. We go to solution B, and this is the only solution. If you don't have a bulk bed, you don't have that. You have a bunch of evolutions. Right. This is how we join pre-attached together. This is how we extend them. This is how we extend the blitz line, you know. So, again, I think people don't look at it quite right. You know, that they think options make the box solid and options make the box weaker. You want the... You want the minimum amount of solutions that address the vast majority of problems. I love it. I love it. One more question. You want the, go ahead. You want the problem in your box. You don't want to be thinking outside the box. Someone said we got to be inserting constants. That's me. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, me. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> Anytime you see a variable and you can insert a constant, you should be inserting a constant. I love that, man. That's one of my favorite quotes. I use it in my presentation, man. Um Greg, I'm Greg. happy to keep going, but we're, we're no, no, at the, we're at two uh, hours. We're at two hours. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. tell me, I got five questions for firefighters. Um, okay, so let's just do that. I had one. Other, yeah, which I'm, I'm pulling them up. I want you to be filled honor, Dennis. Okay, I'll get you out of here. I know it's late over there. Oh, uh, it's okay. In I, California. I, just, you know, I don't want to run over the all time record. <laughs> What's the all time record? I, it has to be Ike. Ike has to have it. I think he's close to three hours. So you're not. Know, right. Yeah, you're. You got. You got a I'm long safe. buffer. Yes. Yeah, I'm safe. Um, this is the final time that the original, a hundred and uh, number hundred nineteen episodes, five questions for firefighters. This is the last time the original five questions for firefighters will be asked. So, hope you feel very honored. Here we go. Number one, and here's the deal: there are no correct answers. It's a hundred percent your opinions. I pass out the points. It's a hundred percent my opinion on how good you did on the answer. So, all right. <laughs> Five questions for firefighters. Number one, what is the number one issue facing the modern fire service? How effective water is because it because it leads to people that that don't know how to do their job properly. We get we get it. It's too easy. It, so that way, since water is so effective, even poorly done water will extinguish a fire. So people think they're being successful. So you're not capturing how much you suck, right? So if it, so, so that's the main problem. Like it, 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 if water was 50% less effective, you would get four times the quality of firefighter. They wow. would have the nozzle open. They'd be mapping their advance. Mm. They'd have a lot more knowledge about how to apply water on the fire ground. But – I, I can't do that. I can't I can't put my thumb on it. It would be too cruel for the life side of the equation. So, no, no, 100%. I like it. So I, I, I really think that's the big problem. Understanding how water is applied and the way to do it properly is the, the number one problem. I love that. So if I can encapsulate it, it's, it's if the modern American fire service understood how much they actually suck and how good water is. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like throwing a grenade into a room when you're trying to kill somebody. You're probably going to be successful. Very, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very, okay. 
I love it. No, no, 100%. I love the answer. And, and I will say this is the most original answer I think I've ever gotten on that question. I've yeah. never heard that before. And so I will give you max points on question number one. So here we go. Number two. What is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting? I, I, I think that there, uh, one of the things that the fire service is a social place. And I think we were the early adopters of social media. And I think we had a lot of good uptake at the beginning. Uh, honestly, I think if I wasn't hurt and retired in 2009, if I was hurt, if I had the same amount of time on job, you know, like, and I was hurt in 1999, no one would even know who I was. I just hit it right. And it wasn't as toxic at the beginning. So I, I hit it, I hit it just right. So I think personally, I'm an optimist around this subject. I think we've had we've gone through toxicity here a little bit on social media, but what has occurred is the networking has come around, and people are more result driven now. You know, they're they're like, well, I don't care what department you're in. You know, do you have value uh, to the fire service? And I think the equipment manufacturers are getting in on the game and providing training like Elkhart and stuff like that. So. I think there's a whole nother, there's a vetted by market forces and also other things that are going to lead to increased uh, uh, equipment design, increase in shared relevant material, and that the the bullshit's going to be washed out even more over time. And I'd say an example of that, if I had to say like one thing that I'm very excited about, and I I had a hand in it, but now I'm not the only one. We could go on a history of why it occurred, but I think the large hand line attack package of the future of the American fire service, if your target flows between 250 and 265, it's going to be two and a quarter, 2.3 inch hose. And it's going to be a dedicated, you're not going to be trying to use something that's also supply line right. as a hand line. Yes. You know, you're, it's going to be a dedicated large, large you know, attack line large attack package no and, no and, yeah. and we didn't we didn't even get to that in the questions because and and it's beautiful what you've done in in addressing uh the true diameter and the two and a quarter which is what we carry i got green true id 2.25 on all our rigs and uh yeah i didn't even know that you know like they told me they can't even make it fast enough anymore. Like it's just going. There's a few things I want to change on it. There's right. some coupling stuff. The coupling stuff I wanted. I, I was going to even bring it up, but that's okay. The what I think can be done with that is that where the lugs are on the on the coupling, I I think we can do a ring that's full height of the lug all the way around. Right. So when you tip it forward, it'll actually have that same approach angle that was in the old two and a half inch right so it won't hit the threads so it won't it won't hit it would be very simple to do yeah i've i've actually told key the key about it uh unfortunately they're like a lot of companies you know they got irons all over sure sure no 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 doubt about it especially like with covid and stuff i I don't actually make i don't actually make any money from the sales (laughs) of any of that stuff i just i just did it because i wanted it for clients no, no, and 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 I don't think people understand the impact you've had on, uh, you know, not only that but nozzle size. The, yeah, I here's I, a here's a weird one. It's a thirteen sixteenths. Yeah, and it's not just me. Other people are like, 
This is basically 150 at 60. I kind of wanted to see if it would work on inch and a half hose, you know. And it's gonna the pendulum's gonna swing too far one direction. Sure. We're gonna be down to like you know. I have a 27 30 second step that didn't work worth the shit <laughs> on inch and a half hose. So like you know like there's a whole waste bin of failed dentist ideas okay. you know out in the backyard so fair enough you talk to yeah. dc about all the inch and a half stuff and all that kind of thing and i asked i made the 27 30 seconds for dc because i you know i i wanted to see if 150 at 50 there's just so little surface area in that bottom 36 inches of inch and a half you know i think kentland runs a 150 at 75 on theirs but yeah it's still a very wild land and here's the here's the real rub with that as the hose size gets smaller, the amount of water, you know, so in the last 72 inches of inch and three quarter versus 1.88, it's 6.2 versus 7.2 uh, uh, water system weight. So it's about an extra pound of, pound of water. But when you're talking about like most inch and a half is inch and five eighths, and now you have true ID inch and three quarter. There was a time when it was easier for me to get people an inch and three quarter by buying inch and a half hose. Gotcha. There, there was inch and a half hose that was closer to inch and three quarter sure. than inch and three quarter hose. Right. So, but like, you know, in the smaller hose sizes, especially the difference between like a true ID inch and three quarter or a sniper or something Mercedes is making whatever an inch and a half, the weight difference is very small, but the, hydraulic dynamics of losing those 10 20 square inches of surface in the last three is enormous right like i don't think it's i don't think it's worth it you know it's just me out in the backyard experimenting you know to see <laughs> it's and by the way like it's Ligier engineering i'm doing business as Ligier engineering i don't have an engineering degree i have an engineering mindset i've taken some engineering classes but you know, like I'm, I'm not, you know, like I need to talk to people like Steve Kerber. I need to talk to people like Dan Madrakowski. I need to talk to the people at the hose companies. You know, I feel like if, if I had to relate it to a popular movie and I hate to use this one, but it's the only one that came to mind is like, uh, whatever the Tom Cruise's character in the stock car movie, cold trickle. Right. I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know how to do it. I needed to sit down with somebody that ran the loom I want stiffer hose. I want it to pack like this, you know, and it, it was a lot of collaboration. Right on, man. There, there is, there's 13 failures on true ID inch and three quarter. Really? Yeah. <laughs> there's well, we, 13 pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's as honest as you can be about it. All right. Yeah. We completely on down uh, rabbit holes. Number three. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, best rank. Wait, my points. <laughs> no, no, no. If you didn't get max points, you didn't get max points. So number three All is right. the best rank or position to be in in the fire service. Um, it took me a long time to like company officer as a lieutenant, and then uh, when I made captain in Oakland, captain is in a single house. Uh, and if you have two good lieutenants and two different crews, you basically can kind of set the tempo for the entire firehouse. And then if you have a couple good chiefs and they realize that the captain of that firehouse is really in charge of the day-to-day problems and stuff, and you talk to your lieutenants and you say, Hey, if it's an emergent thing, deal with it with your battalion chief, that shift, but like house problems, everything I want to come through me. If you can create that culture like that, 
captain of a single house with two lieutenants is probably the most rewarding position where you can really dial. And it took me a while to figure that out. And I didn't get to do enough time in that position. So, you know, I look back at my drives days of driving. That's where I felt most confident. Right. Um, Believe it or not, I slept best as a uh, member of a ladder company that's on the, uh, in the bird dog or irons position. Actually, I was pretty comfortable tillering too. Like those were the best nights of sleep. So I kind of feel like when you look at your career, everyone's going to have different answers to this. And sure. And when you look at a Scott air pack and someone goes like, Oh, the wireframe was the best. And this regulator <laughs> by this company, you would make, everybody would make their own Franken SCBA. Like this face piece fits me the best. This sure. harness fits the best on my back. So, you know, that's going to be a question that's hard, hard for, the answer, but I, I really thought the captain where you're truly in charge of, of the other two shifts. And uh, the thing that sealed the deal for me was Mike Lombardo talking about that. And he, he said the same thing. And he said, the best one was captain of an engine house with a single chief present. And he, he said, because the chief's your guest. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> like, I like it. Yeah, and I was like, oh, wow, that was pretty – he has a great story. If anyone ever runs into him, ask him his favorite position of fire service. It was a captain with the chief in the house, and I ran away from those stations. <laughs> I wanted to be I wanted to be a captain of a single house on the edge of my battalion. Right on. So, like, so the other battalion chief – I was closer to the battalion chief that wasn't in charge of me than the battalion chief that I was. But I was. But anyway, captain, captain of single house with Dude, lieutenants. I love it, man. I love that. Uh, 100%. And, and this is the cool thing about the five questions for firefighters and something that was completely accidental. There is no correct answer. Oh, I know. It is strictly. But it is captain of a single house with two lieutenants. Uh, dude, that's very specific. <laughs> I don't know how many people can, 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 uh, yeah. No, I love it. Uh, where am I at? Pulling up my notes. Best advice you have ever received? Huh. Best advice I've ever received. Let me think about that. I'll answer the fifth one. Come back to that. Okay. Number five. Coming at you. Heavy fire. Searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? Nozzles. Nozzles. You can make a larger impact. You can make the VES possible. Like you make a larger in- impact. Uh, that's like, you know, do you want to be the wide receiver that's being thrown the touchdown pass? Or do you want to be one of the members that might block on the, on the football field? It's like, you want to be the guy receiving the ball. Like, I yeah. love it, dude. No, I can't. I, and I, and because of the analogy, that's max points on that one, because you, the, the analogy is beautiful uh, for how, it, how it plays out. And yeah. that's, that's what I'm looking for. So, I still got to throw it to you because you have an answer number four. Best advice. We'll wrap this up as soon as you answer number four. Yeah, so be- best advice. Um, you know, I told you I got some you know disappointing news today about something that I thought was going to occur maybe a few years from now, but it's going to have to be delayed. Right, no specifics, um, but yeah, you did mention it. Uh and it was something I I had a hard date in my mind, you know, like I was like, ah, oh. I was like, it's, it's definitely not going to be what I thought it was. It's not the end of the world, but I think my wife and I'm horrible at this, but 
uh, you should only really worry about things that you have some reasonable ability to change. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, I think the fire service is full of people that can make really good changes in their company at their company level. And they're freaked out. Cause like the policy's bad or whatever's bad. I, I look, my wife told me today, like when this thing happened, she's like, well, there's nothing you can do about that. It's like, it's either going to be a problem or it's not going to be a problem. And she's right. Like this particular thing, it's just like, basically it's tied to bureaucracy. Right. And there's nothing, you know, it's like, I'm just in the tool. So I would say probably, and I've heard different versions of this from multiple people to like focus on the stuff that you can change or, or when there's a huge problem and there's nothing you can do about it, you know, try to put it out of your head or whatever. And I, I, I would say that's probably, Easier said than done, but probably universally a good thing. Beautiful. And and uh, one of my favorite pieces of advice, so of course you get max points on this one because circle of influence, circle of concern, Stephen Covey, when he talks about it, you know, he talks about this is what you can affect. This is all the shit that you worry about, you know? So, yeah, I don't, I've never heard any of that stuff. No, but, it's beautiful, know, it's, dude. It, but like yeah. you said, it's been said a thousand times a thousand ways, and your yeah. wife encapsulated it, and you just encapsulated it beautifully. And yeah. so there it is. The five questions for firefighters, <laughs> according to engineer, fire engineer, hydraulic engineer, water wizard, Dennis Laguerre. The nozzles is definitely the correct answer on the that nozzles. last one. No, yeah. I, that's, that's what I judge it on is how much passion is behind <laughs> the answer. Yeah. So uh, officially, 119 scraps are in the books. The last time the original five questions for five, here's the deal, guys. I don't even know what I, I got Ray McCormick coming on in a few days. It's like on Saturday, New Year's Day, first episode of 2022. And I have to have five new questions to ask him. I've had a whole bunch given to me by people and viewers and et cetera. I have no idea what the next five questions are going to be. I just want them to be as good as the first five. So anyway, we'll see how that goes. Um, if someone wants to get a hold of you, if they want to bring you in to consult, etc., or just reach out to you and ask a question. A lot of people had questions I didn't get to. Guys, I apologize. Be- before I let you answer, Dennis, I'm going to tell everybody this. I'm working on a way to be uh, the audience gets to interact better with the scrap. And I'm going to try and unveil it with Raymac here this week, but I don't know if it'll happen. So anyway, back to Dennis. How to get a hold of you? Uh, email. You know, De- Dennis at hydrantsnozzles.com uh, is the best way. And you can, I'm the only Dennis Legear listed in the United States, so it's very easy to find my proper email address. It's, the website's not changing because someone built it for me and I have no idea how to do it, and it was given as a gift. So I've heard people go like, update it, blah, blah, blah. The email's on there. Uh, email's best. Um, and I'm pretty, I try to keep to the less than two things a month. So, like, uh, I'm pretty task saturated, time compressed. So, if there is, if, if there is any interest uh, in your thinking budget cycle or whatever, try to get a hold of me early. Like, I'm looking, I'm looking into 2022 spring. <laughs> sometimes I can fit people in. Don't not call, but I, you know, it it can be ask Corley. How hard was it to get a hold of me? Dude, he, the guy is in demand. That's all I can say. <laughs> so- <laughs> there is a high demand and a low supply, so you figure it out. Um, that's what it comes down to, man. So, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if I can make it any plainer than that. 
Thank you. Uh, uh, and a lot of it's because I'm goofing off too. Don't feel too sorry for me. I have I have a good time uh, goofing off. That's the well. best part, man. You better be. So that, I mean, oh. honestly, you should be. Um, FirehouseVigilance.com. Holidays are over. I, if you're like me, everybody spent too much on over the holidays. So uh, if you want to. Go get some swag. Do so. I always like to hype the website and the, the mutts don't scrap and the hats and et cetera. But next up, New Year's Day. I'm pretty excited. It was hard. I don't know. I honestly want to say this because Dennis Legear was the hardest guy to get on the scrap out of 119 scraps. But I made it happen. And then the second hardest guy was, is Ray McCormick, who is coming up in, in a few days. And so he's number 120 on New Year's Day. There's lots of football games going on and everything like that, but we're going to have a scrap on Saturday, New Year's Day. Uh, and he is going to be the first one to answer the brand new five questions for firefighters. He doesn't know what they are. I don't know what they are. It'll be fun for everybody. Um, next place I'm heading is CF Tactics Fire School in February down there in Pensacola. I'm excited. If you are going to be there, please look me up. Uh, I love to get pictures with everybody. I love to post those pictures and put hashtag mutts don't scrap. If you, uh, all my housekeeping right here at the end. If you think the scrap brings value to the fire service, please go to firehousevigilance.com. Please support it in any way, shape, or form. I'm working on some way to, to, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'll work on it. I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I'm working on later. Uh, final things. I got to show off these because, uh, Ray Dorval sent me this one. Man, I don't know if I can get it to, if the lights will let it focus. There it is. Way of the nozzle. Make the push. Beautiful, man. Just the smoke coming out of the skull. Yeah. Miami Fire. Miami-Dade oh, County, nice. Florida. Fire. Yes. That's from Dorval. The black. Big black. Sending that to me. Ortega. This one came in. Firehouse 3. Same place. Miami-Dade. These guys are awesome, man. I love them. I wanted to send it out and say thank you, guys. Uh, they're going in the in the the flag back there with all the rest of them. I appreciate you guys so much. So I wanted to shout it out. Uh, that's it, Dennis Legear, brother. You you actually crushed it. Two hours twenty one minutes is what I show. So you definitely made an impact. Yeah, well, that's what I figured it would be. <laughs> we, we didn't get to everything, that's for sure, dude. That's a nice thing about that's a nice thing about the fire service. Like if you're passionate, you can just keep going. All right, here's the deal. I hope you will come back because there's stuff. Um, I really want to touch on 2.25 versus you know just the, being the uh, the big attack line. I want to touch yep. on host spec and and specifically 40 60 psi nozzle range and 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 w- the misconception of how come I I slap a smoothbore on and my hose doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I have I have a little chart here. I haven't shown anybody that I was going to try to share tonight. The, oh uh, man, I love yeah. exclusives. Yeah, it was a ho- <laughs> nozzle bite hydraulic force at work is the title. It's pretty. This one's a little. Con- this one actually, it took me understanding that as velocity goes up, sidewall pressure goes down. Right. And at, at the Elkhart, we I was very. Uh, privileged. Uh, there was a, a European and foreign contingent that went to HROC this year, and Elkhart did like a Europe meets US okay. dinner, and I was actually sit next. I think they kind of did it like a wedding, you know, like they sat me next to an actual like hydraulic engineer, and I was like, how can I explain that as velocity goes up, friction loss is not the enemy, and as velocity goes up, Hose actually becomes less 
stiff, you know, like, and he, he's the one that gave me the thing that I used earlier in the, in the scrap where I said, if you take it to infinity, if you take supply hose and you keep flowing more and more water, more and more water to at a certain velocity, it'll want to just collapse in on itself. Right. There's nothing left on the sidewall. <laughs> you thought so from he, Einstein. He, that you're getting into Einstein stuff, and it's like, yeah. no, and and I'm trying to put it into words. As the velocity increases, as you increase the velocity, kinks happen more often. Is is that a good way to say it or not? Yes. I, well, hoses is going to be more squirrely and wild. Anyone who's used a vindicator nozzle on inch and three quarter and gone to 300 gallons a minute and tried to put a kink in it, they'll see how quick it flows out. But then if you try to like hold the hose far out, you know, you get a really wild situation. So Aaron says balance. He's using the word balance. He's correct. Knowing all the little ingredients that's causing it to behave correctly. Like a lot of us know the recipe, like half the diameter of the, of the diameter, this thing, we need a stiff hose, but actually quantifying like what's occurring. I'm sure if I was a phys, if I had a physics engineering degree or something from Berkeley, I'd be like, Oh, this is like obvious what's occurring, but the picture over the last two years, the pictures become way more clear. And that's one of the reasons, uh, that combat sniper got developed to get it to Beautiful. fold a little better, but right. also behave more like true ID. There's, there's some gimmick tree that is pretty interesting. <laughs> that is proprietary to key, um, on that, on that stuff, but they all have it. There's all kind of ways, but I know, when you get to a certain spot, when you go, when you shoot for excellent, like the true ID two and a quarter, I'll say this right now, uh, and, and I hope and I think it's market forces and more competitions better. Nothing touches true ID two and a quarter now. It's the heaviest out there, but there's a reason it's heavy. There's a reason it's weighs it as much as it does coupled per fifty. And I think you've used it, right? Oh I yeah, mean, it's it's pretty. It's our high rise bundle. I mean, one hundred percent. It's not. It, yeah. It's our high rise. Should be off bundle. your engine too, but so, you'll get there. We we have quince only. We don't have dedicated trucks. So oh, uh, you don't have that. Space. It's off everything. Yeah. So yeah, that's hundred percent, um, brother. Uh, thank All you. Right. Thank you I'll for talk giving to you me. Later. I, my, I real quick. My wife has corrected me and said my next stop is not in Florida. It's in Nebraska, February fourth through six. I'm teaching the nine L's of leadership. So thank you. I'm sorry. I wanted to correct that. Other than that. Dennis, thank you. Everyone listening, thank you for the questions. I hope the tone stays silent. Unless it's burning, everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.